The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Yosemite Killer and the abduction of Steven Stainer. That's what we're sucking today. Something Carrie Stainer, the Yosemite Killer, might have been able to avoid his dark urges if some horrible events hadn't have happened to him and around him as a child. Keyword, might. Carrie Stainer was born to seemingly normal middle-class parents, Delbert and Kay Stainer, in Merced, California in 1961. And Carrie seemed to have had a fairly normal upbringing until when he was 11, two things happened. He was molested by an uncle and his little brother, Stephen Stainer, was abducted by notorious pedophile and kidnapper, Kenneth Parnell, who kept Stephen for seven years. Seven years. While these years were absolutely more horrific for Stephen, it was also seven years of Carrie living in an emotionally broken home, a home where his parents didn't pay attention to him, where the media was constantly covering his brother's kidnapping, where neighbors and classmates stared at him, asked him about his brother, seven years of that. Carrie found respite in Yosemite National Park, camping and hiking in the mountains. It was the only place where he felt at peace, even after Stephen was returned to the family. Then there would be more tragedy. Stephen would die young in a motorcycle crash and Carrie's uncle would get murdered, a case that's still unsolved while Carrie was living with him. Then Carrie would kill four women in the spring and summer of 1999, and then thankfully he'd be caught before killing at least three others he had already made plans to murder. Was Carrie Stainer always destined to be a killer? Or did his brother's abduction and his molestation and his uncle's murder all combine to push him over the edge? And what the hell went on during his brother's seven-year-long abduction? What was Kenneth Parnell doing to him? Who is Kenneth Parnell? Two sucks in one episode today. Really three. The kidnapping of Stephen Stainer, the story of Kenneth Parnell, and the murders committed by Stephen's brother, Carrie, on another true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. 
Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Be glad your last name isn't Stainer this week. Or if it is, hopefully you're not related to Carrie Stainer. Or if you are, uh, be glad you're not like a sibling or a parent. Or if you are, uh, holy shit, sorry your family experienced so much tragedy. Uh, I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, your Suckleberry, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, and Triple M, and hail you, you beautiful bastard. Recording again in the Suck Dungeon out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Weather has been nice, sunny. It is lifting my spirits. Uh, happy to be alive today. Happy to be telling a tale of tragedy and not living through one. And thank you for all the kind messages about Pop Award uh, from the Suck last week. Not sure why there uh, seem to have been technical difficulties with that episode. It, it's, like, it's like a bunch of pollen or onions got mixed into the RSS feed somehow. Uh, lots of reports of that episode really kind of fucking with people's allergies and their eyes. So I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, a lot of grandparent love coming out of those messages. I'll share some in today's Time Sucker updates. Uh, Emu wore no mercy shirt and 14-ounce stainless steel water bottle in the store at badmagicmerch.com right now. Sweet. Uh, the picture Logan made of a militant emu cracks me up. All kinds of fun stuff at bad mer- uh, badmagicmerch.com. Fun stuff for Time Suck, Scared to Death, uh, Is We Dumb, lots of funny and great stuff. Thanks for supporting us there. Uh, love seeing all the pics of you wearing Bad Magic merch. Uh, still waiting as of recording this on March 18th for our Cult of the Curious private Facebook page to return. Send in more review requests. It's still down. If it's still down when this episode drops, we'll be setting up a backup page. It'll just be Cult of the Curious 2. All of us here at Bad Magic got together to discuss and explore the alternative options, and sadly, there, there isn't any. I mean, I mean, there are, of course, alternatives, but they're not nearly as robust as Facebook, and we just don't see it being remotely as active if we jump ship at this time. So here's the plan. Again, we're going to start Cult of the Curious 2. Uh, that group page, if the original is still down, if the original Cult of the Curious page makes it out of review later, we'll close off the new second page, go back to the original with over 26,000 members. Uh, you can bet your ass when a worthy competitor arrives, given they aren't just as strict as Facebook, we will readdress this topic at that time. Uh, but for now, we are staying with Facebook as our main community page. Uh, time sucks brand of humor. The topics we cover make the Facebook uh, morality police real nervous. They are all about sacrificing free speech for hate speech right now, right? In the, in the, you know, in the, in the name of getting rid of hate speech, they're, they're killing free speech, which is, which is not what I would do, but it's not my company. I say, let the hateful people uh, speak and then we know who they are, right? It's that much easier to find them, which is, I think, a good thing rather than just uh, wondering where they're fucking hiding. Uh, we'll do our best moving forward to follow Facebook's vague guidelines and keep whatever Cult of Curious page we happen to have uh, at the time up and running. Doing our best. Navigate these uh, strange waters. Guide us through the rapids, Nimrod. And now let's, uh, let's add another serial killer to the ever-growing list of time-suck true crime murders. Is Carrie Stainer actually a, quote, serial killer or just a regular old dirtbag murderer? Wikipedia says he's a serial killer. Some documentaries say he's a serial killer. Some true crime junkies say no. Carrie killed four people in two separate attacks, maybe five in three separate attacks if you think he killed his uncle, which many do. But he was never charged for that murder and never confessed, so we can't count it as far as killer definitions go. According to the FBI, the term serial murder means the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. By that definition, Carrie Stainer is just barely a serial killer. Uh, however, some other agencies put the threshold at three victims in separate incidents, which Carrie would not fit unless you really think we should count the uncle. And then you have to factor in my dad. How many of Stainer's victims were actually killed by my dad? You know, or by your dad? You know, where was your dad? 1999. Mine was in peak physical condition, working, quote, out of town a lot. So that's interesting. Uh, but seriously, back to the uh, technical definition of a serial killer. 
1998, a federal law was passed by the United States Congress titled Protection of Children from Sexual Predator Act of 1998. This law includes a slightly different definition of serial killings, stating the term serial killings means a series of three or more killings, not less than one of which was committed within the United States, having common characteristics such as to suggest the reasonable possibility that the crimes were committed by the same actor or actors. Carey did kill four victims, obviously more than three, but he didn't technically kill his victims in three separate killings since three of the women were all together and were killed as part of one incident, kind of. He killed two of those women, abducted the third, who he then killed a short time later. Now, the more I think this out, uh, the more I think he was technically a serial killer. Certainly not as prolific a killer as uh, many of the other dirtbags we've covered, but had he not been caught when he did, or when he was caught, he definitely would have killed more women. He admitted as much. He had plans. Uh, Dude showed no signs of wanting to slow down or stop. He apparently almost killed uh, three additional women the day he was arrested. Now, before I go further, I feel like I need to hit a button. The uh, We are definitely past annou- announcements, uh, past segueing into the topic, and uh, definitely into the heart of the show button. Carrie Stainer. His story is one of both tragedy and brutality. He was both a victim and a victimizer. Was his role as victim related in any way to his transformation into victimizer or merely a coincidence? There's been a fair amount of speculation about this due to the abduction of his brother, coupled with his own molestation. Uh, Carrie was molested by his uncle Jesse at a sleepover months before his brother would go missing. And then uh, uh, before, I'm sorry, uh, actually his uh, his, uh, his uncle uh, Jerry, not Jesse. Um, ah, little, little, little typo that I'm glad I caught as, as we go. Uh, before he even really had time to process his own victimiz- victimization, he was certainly again victimized in a way by a pedophile he never met the one who kidnapped Carrie's brother, Stephen, and held him for seven years. Seven years of Stephen's parents seeming to ignore any of the needs of Carrie, too wrapped up first in their own powerful grief over Stephen's loss, then wrapped up in their joy of having their lost son return to them, uh, then not that many years later, again wrapped up in grief over Stephen's death. Carrie grew up in a physically intact but very emotionally broken home. Uh, doesn't justify any horrific deeds he committed, but how much is it all connected, if at all? Many years later, Carrie became the victimizer, a man who killed in cold blood, taking the lives of four women, two teenagers, a woman in her 40s, and a 26-year-old who, by all accounts, were nothing but forces of good in the world. Did what happened in Carrie's childhood turn him into the monster he became, where those vents collectively, the straw that broke the camel's back, turned the camel into a killer? Or would Carrie have turned into a killer anyways? Had his brother never been kidnapped, had his parents been more emotionally supportive, more in favor of the therapy he clearly needed, would Carrie's story have turned out pretty much the same? Or very different. To think about that is to think about the power of nature versus nurture, free will versus determinism. As most of us know, the overwhelming majority of people who were molested or otherwise abused in their childhoods do not go on to molest others or behave criminally in other ways. But on the other hand, many of the killers we've covered did have horrible childhoods that were marked by sexual, emotional, and physical abuse. So maybe these events didn't turn them into killers. But what if these events did flip a switch on in their dark brains that would have otherwise remained in the thank fucking God this hell switch is off position? Interesting to think about. Uh, Before I do more than just pontificate and talk uh, out of my ass about a bunch of dark uh, I wonder ifs, let's first get to know Yosemite National Park where Carrie Stainer's murders would take place, a park that was Carrie's happy place for years before he committed the murders he'd be caught for. Then we'll get more familiar uh, than you're probably going to want to be with Kenneth Parnell, the dirtbag who kidnapped Carrie's brother and began molesting and raping him shortly after uh, Carrie himself had been molested. Our look into Kenneth will basically be a timeline before today's main timeline. 
And then we'll finish out this suck with our main timeline, beginning with Kerry Stainer's birth, leading up to, and then past his conviction for four murders. So let us begin. Uh, we head to Yosemite first here. Uh, Yosemite obviously is the place the press would base Kerry's murdering moniker, the Yosemite killer, off of. What if it hadn't been, though? What if Kerry uh, was called the Yosemite killer because he was just a huge fan of the Yosemite Sam cartoon? Yosemite Sam! It's Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Sam! Yosemite. Yeah, Yosemite Sam! The roughest, toughest He-Man, stuffest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande. <laughs> and I ain't no Mamby Pamby. God, I still love me some Yosemite Sam. He ain't no Mamby Pamby, whatever the hell that is. Little guy plumb full of yip yip ya. Uh, Bojangles loves Yosemite Sam as well. He sees the same fighting spirit in him. I can't, I can't not smile when I listen to Yosemite Sam. Uh, Yosemite was long before he commits some uh, gruesome killings there, Carrie's Refuge, the only place where he felt himself, where he could drown out the noise of his family's grief and the media attention about his brother, maybe drown out his own violent instincts as well. I have not been to Yosemite National Park, and every time it comes up, I kick myself for not having made more effort to do so. Yosemite encompasses a vast area of mountain paths, alpine wilderness, and redwood forests, one of the most beautiful scenic attractions in America. Uh, situated on the eastern edge of Central California, it's just 77 miles northeast of Fresno, 80 miles east of Modesto. It's about a three-hour drive, depending on, of course, uh, traffic from either Sacramento or San Francisco. Surrounded by national forests on all sides, national forest that extends far to the north and south for miles and miles and miles. That's a large park at 748,436 acres, which is nearly 1.2 million square miles over 3 million square kilometers. It's almost exactly the size of the state of Rhode Island. Yosemite is known for giant granite cliffs, scenic waterfalls, clear streams, massive groves of giant sequoias, mountains, meadows, glaciers, and a lot of biodiversity. 95% of the park is raw wilderness. And like Yellowstone, uh, Yosemite claims to be America's first national park. So who's lying? Which national park is a no-good, double-crossing, sneaky line, good-for-nothing, low-down, dirt-deadling son of a bitch? Maybe neither. I'm not sure what all, what all that was about. Uh, while Yellowstone is technically the first official national park in the U.S., Yosemite was actually protected first. As far as protected land goes or land set aside for recreational use for the public by the American government, Yosemite is older. Uh, mountain man Jim Bridger first reported the site to Yellowstone to other white settlers after an 1856 exploration and almost no one believed him. Uh, when he talked about giant geysers and boiling mud and brightly colored springs hot enough to fry fish in, people seriously thought he was full of shit. <laughs> like for years. How frustrated would that be to see all that beauty, all the beauty of Yellowstone and not be able to share it with anyone without having them think you're just a liar. You're just spinning a yarn. Hell itself rises near the surface, I tell you. Seen it with my own two eyes. The mud bubbles, the ground roars, the water boils. You can swim in a river in the middle of winter. Five feet of snow on the banks and feel like you're in a heated Roman bath. Guys are shooting steam and mud 500 feet into the air. I'll tell you what. Ah, shut up, Jim. You're drunk again. Take care it, Billy. I seen what I seen, I tell you. Uh-huh. And I seen the queen's underpants. Did you see flying pigs in that magical place of yours, Jim? Did you swim with any mermaids in that heated river that only flows through your fabricating head? Oh, suffering, succotash. Stop laughing, Dagnabbit. This is why Jim Bridger lives alone in the mountains. Towns are just full of doubters and fools. We'll be very frustrated. Uh, Yellowstone wasn't really explored uh, properly with interest from the U.S. government via some expeditions until 1869 and 1870. <laughs> so, so for several years, right, like three, four years, people were like, yeah, Jim Bridges, fucking liar. Uh, and then the land was protected federally by Congress in 1872. 
1869, Yosemite was already well-known to the U.S. government. California's gold rushes had brought prospectors and settlers into the area of Yosemite in the 1850s. When early naturalists expressed concerns that California settlement could destroy the unique habitat of Yosemite, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Yosemite Valley Grant Act, Senate Bill 203, on June 30th, 1864. The legislation gave California the Yosemite Valley and the nearby Mariposa Big Tree Grove upon the express conditions that the premises shall be held for public use, resort, and recreation. Uh, this grant, while not technically making Yosemite a national park, we didn't have national parks yet, it did open the door for Yellowstone Park's establishment eight years later. And it, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, made Yosemite a state park. Yosemite as a national park was created on October 1st, 1890, but the state of California retained control of the land because the U.S. still didn't have that National Park Service to administer protected federal lands. The NPS wouldn't be created until 1916 when control of Yosemite shifted from the state of California to the U.S. federal government. And a portion of the natural beauty of the Sierra Nevada mountain range, several peaks rising up over 14,000 feet above sea level, has been officially federally <clears throat> excuse me, protected ever since. Yosemite offers an abundance of activities and sightseeing destinations. The valley is a seven-mile-wide canyon with incredible rock formations, including El Capitan, the world's tallest granite monolith, uh, the cliff portion of this rock formation roughly 3,000 feet from base to summit, one of the world's top rock-climbing destinations for those fucking maniacs who uh, enjoy doing that. Uh, it's very impressive, but uh, terrifies me. Half Dome is another popular sightseeing stop. Uh, granite Dome at the eastern end of Yosemite Valley, also popular with climbers. And I just checked out a, a video on YouTube of two maniacs skiing down it. It made my stomach hurt just to watch. No part of me understands how extreme skiers or snowboarders just, uh, you know, jump off a helicopter or whatever in places like Yosemite and just hope they can make it down a cliff. Uh, Yosemite Falls, the largest waterfall in North America, breathtaking views, drops a total of 2,425 feet from top of the upper falls to the base of the lower falls. Uh, the park is also known for its giant sequoia trees, which are estimated to be over 3,000 years old, which is pretty awesome still alive for 3,000 years. Some of these trees are over 130 feet tall. So you get it. You know, you get it. Yosemite is very pretty, full of hiking trails, fishing spots, campgrounds, lots of open land. And Carrie Stainer would work and kill at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portal, California, just outside the Highway 140 West entrance to Yosemite, just over 10 miles from Yosemite Village, where about 1,000 park staff and park contract workers generally live. El Portal is a census-designated place of about 400 people, a couple hotels, small general store, gas station, post office, community center, little school, etc. And prior to Stainer's crimes, El Portal never really made the news. On his Wikipedia page, Carl Stainer's crimes are the only thing mentioned other than just basic statistical information. Uh, for many, Stainer's crimes brought a deep nagging fear to life that way out in the woods, a killer could easily slip in, kill you, and then just slip away. Before he was caught, his crimes felt like some sort of real-life 80s slasher flick. Right, a real Jason Voorhees could be out there in the woods ready to come out of Crystal Lake and just slash young women to death at any moment. Important to note, though, that Stainer's crimes were and still are the exception to the rule. By and large, national parks are very safe. According to an article written in 1999, after Carrie's crimes, of the 4 million visitors to Yosemite in 1998, just 15 were victims of violent crimes, a 70% drop from six years earlier. Homicides in America's 54 national parks are rare, Indeed, 64.5 million visitors uh, thronged the parks in 1998, and remarkably, there were no murders. Before Carrie's last victim's death, the last known homicide inside Yosemite boundaries had occurred in 1987, when a man pitched his wife off of a cliff to collect on her insurance policy. 
and he did not get away with it. <laughs> quick deviation into this story real quick. This guy seems like he was a real idiot. Stevie Allen Gray, when he was 24, a former uh, uh, Lemoore Naval Air Station sailor, uh, or Lemoore, yeah, took out numerous, uh, sorry if I got that name wrong there, took out numerous life insurance policies on his new bride, Dolores Guadalupe Contreras Gray, also just 24, immediately after they got married in August of 1987. And then this killer did not have any patience. He only waited around four months before he took his bride to Yosemite, showed her a beautiful vista, and then pushed her off a cliff. He did that on December 5th, 1987. Then when the insurance companies decided to not pay out because they found Dolores, quote unquote, falling off a cliff on a hike with the man uh, she had just married, a man who had just taken out multiple life insurance policies uh, on her a few months back to be a, a wee bit sus, as the cool kids say, uh, Stevie sued the insurance companies and his lawsuit drew the intention of the FBI. He brought that shit on himself. And while Dolores' death was initially ruled as accidental, that classification changed to homicide. Stevie was charged, tried, found guilty of first-degree murder, sentenced to life in prison. <laughs> in cases like Grace, I'm amazed what people think they can get away with sometimes. Like, how did he think that taking out several life insurance policies on his new, totally healthy, 24-year-old bride uh, worth a total payout of $500,000 and then going hiking with her and having her, you know, fall off a cliff, uh, you know, or get pushed was not going to look suspicious. Weird for him to take out that much life insurance on her when they were both 24 in the first place. Like the only people who think it's a good idea to do shit like that are insurance agents or people easily tricked by insurance agents or people who want to murder you for your insurance payout. I have life insurance on me uh, over a million dollars worth. Two policies, one where the kids are beneficiaries, one where uh, my wife, Lindsay, is a beneficiary. And, and it makes sense because our livelihood is entirely dependent on me staying alive. <laughs> like, like if I die, our, our company goes away currently right now. Uh, these two were just 24 years old. No kids. Starting out in their careers. Dolores dies. Stevie goes back to just how life was a few months before he was uh, married. Like her death wasn't going to put him in a half million dollar hole. So if you're 24 and your spouse wants to take out multiple life insurance policies on you right after you get married, maybe it's nothing. Maybe they're just an overly paranoid person. Uh, or someone, you know, again, easily manipulated by life insurance salespeople. Or maybe they're thinking about killing you. Anyway. This murder took place 12 years before Stainer's killings. In between a dozen years of no murders in the park that we know of, sounds like a pretty safe place, uh, like all national parks. According to a, stat, a statistician at the University of Florida, the odds of being murdered in a national park in 1995 were about one in 20 million, less than the odds of drowning in one's own bathtub. So worry less about getting killed in a park and worry so much more about drowning in your bathtub. That rubber ducky wants you fucking dead. Refocusing now. Until the Yosemite murders, perhaps the most terrifying crime against women in any of America's national parks occurred three years before Stainer's killings in late May of 1996, when two experienced backpackers, Julianne Williams, 24, and Lolly Winans, 26, were knifed to death at their campsite a few hundred yards off the Appalachian Trail in Virginia's Shenandoah National Park. Uh, Julie's dad notified officials the women were, were missing on May 31st. The two women had been out for a five-day circuit hike in the park when they were attacked, no suspect ever been arrested. Uh, Lolly was found inside the couple's tent. She'd been gagged, her hands and ankles bound with duct tape. Her throat had been slit. Julie's hands also had been bound. She'd been gagged. Her throat also, uh, yeah, her throat slit. Uh, neither had been sexually assaulted. Both found partially undressed. Julie's body, along with her sleeping bag and sleeping pad, were found about 30, 40, uh, 30 to 40 feet away down a little embankment. If you don't want to... Uh, Sorry, and if you don't know uh, where your dad or my dad was on May 31st, uh, you, you may want to notify the FBI so they can help try and you know solve that. Uh, but seriously, while these killings were obviously tragic, they are outliers. 
murders in national parks, very rare, which is why Carrie Stainer's killings got so much attention. Uh, the national park system and the FBI maintain open files for unsolved cases of either missing or murdered people. Uh, there are currently 29 people on this uh, list of open files, including Julie Williams and Lolly Winans. And of all these cold cases, only a few are obvious crimes with a body and evidence of foul play. Uh, most, uh, most of these cases are just, you know, missing people, disappearances, such as the disappearance of, uh, uh, oh boy, Chiricahua, I should have put a pronunciation guy on that one, <laughs> Chiricahua uh, National Monument Ranger, Paul Fugate. Uh, I, I feel like I'm not nailing that one. Uh, the victims, yeah, like him, mostly seem to kind of like vanish into thin air. He disappeared on January 13th, 1980, at the age of 41. No trace of him ever has been found. He was working in the Mountains Visitor Center the day he disappeared, about 2 p.m. that day. He uh, left the building, went to hike on a little park trail, and has just never been seen again. Super weird. Investigators suspected foul play early on, but could find no clues regarding, uh, you know, uh, what happened to his body. No scrap of clothing, no blood, nothing. Aliens? Sasquatch? Lemurians popping out of their dimension into ours, snatching him? I don't know. Uh, for a lot more national parks, uh, you know, facts including murders, random deaths, disappearances, supposed cryptid sightings, uh, and more spookiness, you can check out episode 131, uh, National Park Mysteries of Time Suck. Uh, let's shift gears now to Kerry, uh, his brother's disappearance, Stephen Stainer. Yosemite was Kerry Stainer's happy place, the man who cast one of the darkest shadows over Kerry's life that drove him to seek a place like Yosemite to find solace was Kenneth Parnell. Get ready to get real fucking mad. I ended up taking a serious detour in the research and doing a lot more on the Kenneth Parnell, Stephen Stainer stuff because I was like, this story's insane. Set out to just most, initially this was supposed to only be a Yosemite killer episode. And then this other stuff was just too, ah, there's just too much to ignore. Uh, if you don't believe in hell, get ready to wish it existed so you can find satisfaction in believing this cold-blooded, perverse motherfucker is down there burning into nothing just to be rebuilt to burn anew. Uh, today's suck, uh, yeah, really kind of two slash three sucks and the first two parts center around Kenneth Parnell. Parnell was a truly disgusting and deplorable dirtbag who changed Carrie Stainer's life dramatically, nearly destroyed the life of Carrie's brother, Stephen, who he abducted and raped for seven years. In some ways, Parnell might be at least partially responsible for Carrie, you know, becoming the monster he became. Kenneth Parnell was born on September 26, 1931 in Amarillo, Texas, during the region's Dust Bowl era to parents Cecil Frederick Parnell and Mary Olive Parnell. Born just a year before Papa Ward, Born into similarly impoverished circumstances, but uh, what a very different life he would choose to lead. I imagine Kenneth not being born the traditional way and instead literally being shit out into a cesspit. And then he climbed out of the shit like a monster and his mom found a little living turd, took pity on this turd and raised that actual piece of shit as if it uh, was human. Kenneth's father was an alcoholic. His mother was a, a religious fundamentalist. He came up during the Great Depression, later moved with his mom, two half-sisters, and a half-brother to Bakersfield, California, after Parnell's father abandoned the family when Kenneth was six in 1937. Separation of his mom and dad, his mom took the whole family west on the Santa Fe Railroad, and his dad stayed behind and never saw the family again. Apparently, this all, which is understandable, greatly upset young Kenneth. Kenneth spent several hours pulling out four of his teeth with a pair of pliers uh, upon his parents' separation. He would later say uh, in a prison interview, my recollection of the day of separation, just as any kid would obviously be, I was upset. I wanted to go with my dad. And of course I didn't. I just simply did not want to leave where I was at. I didn't want to come to California. Children tend to not want to have the world upset. Yeah, they sure don't, Kenneth. Uh, one way of upsetting a child's world, you know, one could argue, uh, would be to kidnap a kid at the age of seven and then sodomize them for seven fucking years straight. Like he did to Carrie Stainer's younger brother, Stephen. 
Uh, too bad you didn't pull out enough teeth to somehow bleed to death that day. Uh, after a few years in Bakersfield, when Kenneth's mom worked as a nurse's aide, uh, nurse's aide, she took the family to Texas to Waxahachie. It's a fun town name. Where are you from? Waxahachie. I feel like you got to throw some excitement when you talk about Waxahachie. No one's like, oh, Waxahachie. Where are you from? Waxahachie, Waxahachie, Texas. Uh, just south of Fort Worth. They lived there for three years where she was able to save enough money to move her brood back to Bakersfield in early 1944 by a boarding house. Then in the spring of 1945, one of her boarders befriended the slender, troubled 13-year-old Kenneth and after establishing a degree of fatherly trust in the fatherless boy, coerced him into engaging in fellatio. And this act would leave a lasting impression on Kenneth. It seemed to flip a switch on inside of him. Years later, the groomed would become the groomer and he would do the exact thing he hated so much having been done to him to other children. Kenneth's anger over being molested led him to set in fires. Uh, he set a fire to a pasture soon after the encounter. He got caught, taken into custody, locked up in Bakersfield Juvenile Hall. A psychiatrist who examined him at the time, Dr. Richard D. Lohenberg, Dr. Dick Lohenberg, recommended temporary placement for Parnell in the Juvenile Hall in the hope that his marked emotional immaturity mixed with his sophisticated disposition toward perversion might be overcome. Uh, it would not. His perverse disposition would never be overcome. After several months in juvie, still 13-year-old Kenneth was released early in the summer of 1945. That fall, shortly after his 14th birthday, he stole a car, got arrested. After a court hearing, sent to the California Youth Authority's Fred Nell's School in Whittier, a residential facility for juvenile male offenders. And Parnell would be in prison there from October of 1945 to February of 1947, uh, during which time he later reported he engaged in homosexual behavior both passively and actively. Uh, he said that's just how things were. Sometimes you were the raped, sometimes you were the raper. His sexual identity is now cemented in savagery. Uh, this will not bode well for many going forward. Upon his release from Whittier in 1947, 15-year-old Kenneth returns to live with his mom in Bakersfield. Just 10 months later, in December of 1947, now 16-year-old Kenneth is, quote, arrested as a homosexual, as the cringy legal record of the time put it, uh, for public sex acts. No word on the age of whoever he engaged in these acts with was, or, or if it was consensual. I doubt claims of homosexual rape were taken real seriously back then, since America was extremely intolerant towards homosexuality at the time. Uh, released to his mom's custody just two months later, Parnell steals another car. He lands in the California Youth Authority's Lancaster facility now. Two weeks after being locked up, he escapes. He returns to Bakersfield. Uh, he would say later he returned there because he was sexually attracted to a young boy he'd seen. Dude's only 16 years old himself now. He's already a hardened sexual predator. Shortly after arriving back in Bakersfield within days, he is arrested again. No word on whether or not he found or harmed that boy. Now he's placed in the Kern County Jail in Bakersfield where he attempts suicide by drinking disinfectant. After emergency treatment at Kern General Hospital, Parnell is sent to the state mental hospital at Napa, northeast of San Francisco for 90 days. And before the 90 days are up, he escapes again. This time he goes to San Francisco, where he steals another car. <laughs> then he returns to Bakersfield to again try and find that young boy. He's quickly rearrested, again not sure if he found that kid or not, was returned to the Lancaster facility, where he remains until he is released as a 17-year-old in May of 1949. So he's had a one hell of an uh, adolescence here. Ken now returns to Bakersfield, moves back in with his mom. A few months later, after uh, uh, he begins a series of short-term jobs, first as a kitchen worker at Kern General Hospital, then as a stock boy for Smith's Market, then later as a stock boy for the local Sears Roebuck store. Uh, then in mid-1950, Parnell, just 18 now, still living at home, gets married to Patsy Jo Dorton. She moves in with him and his mom. And within a year, he is charged with a sex crime. 
Another one. On March 20th, 1951, Parnell, driving his mom's black Chevrolet coupe, approaches three young grade school boys playing near Kern General Hospital, flashing a fake deputy sheriff's badge he uh, he had bought at a Bakersfield Army-Navy surplus store that morning. He talks one of them, little nine-year-old Bobby Green, into accompanying him. He then drives this poor kid east of Bakersfield to a remote area in the Kern River Canyon where he sexually assaults him multiple times, then casually drives the terrified kid back to where he picked him up in Bakersfield and lets him out. Immediately, young Bobby runs home, tearfully tells his parents what had happened. Within a day, Parnell is arrested again, charged with three felonies revolving around the kidnapping of and sodomizing of a minor. His defense attorney tries to plead that Parnell needed rehab more than he needed incarceration, and he was evaluated by a court-appointed psychiatrist, uh, Camarillo State Hospital's Dr. Nash. And Dr. Nash says, it is this examiner's opinion that this prisoner is a definite psychopathic personality with well-defined homosexual drives and as such has a tendency and predisposition to commit sexual offenses to a degree constituting him as a menace to the health and safety of others. And it is recommended that he be committed to a suitable institution for the care and treatment of this disorder, namely psychopathic personality and sex psychopath. So at the age of only 19, Parnell has been declared a sexual psychopath. He's sentenced to only four years in prison, of uh, which he serves three and a half, despite escaping from two different psychiatric hospitals while awaiting his sentencing. This dude escaped, what, fucking nine times now? Three and a half years for impersonating an officer to sodomize a nine-year-old and escaping incarceration twice after his arrest. Three and a half years after numerous sex crime convictions as a juvenile. You know, right? Numerous, you know, uh, cars he stole, an arson conviction, numerous escapes. And people have been in prison for decades in California for selling weed. It's fucking absurd. Robert Platzhorn, leader of what the DEA once dubbed the Black Tuna Gang, spent the mid to late 70s smuggling weed into the U.S. from Columbia before he was busted in 1978. Uh, he had 500 tons of pot is what they charged him with importing. And he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. He served 28. He was released in uh, 2008. Guys who can't stop trying to fuck kids, three and a half years. Guys who uh, bring great times to thousands of people who love pot, 28 years. It's almost like a lot of people who decide what our laws are are fucking idiots. Uh, in a 2000 interview about the 1951 crime, Parnell would say he kidnapped and molested that boy because his wife was pregnant and he, quote, had to find another outlet. I hate his wording choice. Oh, he had to. He had to find another outlet. He couldn't just jerk off. No, sir. Wouldn't it be great if human brains were wired in a way where if, if you followed through on some urge to rape a kid, your next urge would be an overwhelming desire to take your own life? No prison terms necessary for pedos, right? They could just remove themselves from the population. That's just a, just a fantasy. Uh, here's another one. I think the government should run a national pro-masturbation campaign, right? Too many dirty motherfuckers out there committing too many heinous crimes, claiming that they're motivated essentially by horniness. What if, what if reducing horniness could also reduce uh, sex crimes? Just uh, stay with me for a second. The following is a public service announcement paid for by Wackett. Worried humans advocating for controlling kinky interests and tragedies. When in doubt, whack it. Bad horny thoughts floating about, whack it. Hoping to introduce your private parts to someone who hasn't consented or can't legally consent, whack it. We here at Whack It believe that a lot more masturbation could lead to a lot less sex crime. A gun is only dangerous in the wrong hands. Same thing for a hard penis or a firm clit. For more information on the dangers of firm clits, please visit our sister organization, Flick It. Frustrated ladies interested in controlling kinky interests and tragedies. The basic message is the same. Whack it to keep your penis soft and your mind clean. 
flick it to keep your clit hidden and your focus pure. You may not be able to control your thoughts, but you can manage your libido with enough masturbation in most cases. Thank you for listening. This public service announcement was paid for by Wackett, worried humans advocating for controlling kinky interests and tragedies. Visit our website, wackett.com, to have a 10-gallon steel drum of free industrial-strength lotion sent to your home. When in doubt, whack it. Look, I don't know if more masturbation would actually lead to a lot less sex crimes, but it, it at least makes the defense of, but I was so horny, even more absurd than it already is. Anyway, Kenneth Parnell will be released in 1955 after his bullshit sentence. After he and his wife have a daughter while he's in prison, he was released on the condition that he receive regular psychiatric treatment. And then he just didn't do that. He's like, no, I don't want to go. And he just fucking didn't. And he didn't suffer any consequences. Uh, he did get in trouble for violating parole by leaving San Francisco, where he'd been released and uh, returning to Bakersfield to be with Mama. He went back behind bars for a couple months, then got out, had his parole agreement, transferred to Bakersfield, and moved back home. In early 1957, he gets divorced from his first wife, Patsy Joe. That August, he remarries to Emma Naoma Schaefer. He has another daughter with her. Thank God he wouldn't stick around to parent either one of these kids. I doubt this dude was uh, above molesting his own kin. In the summer of 1960, he moves to Ogden, Utah with his second wife and second daughter. He'd already completely abandoned his first daughter. Holds up a gas station with a, re- with a revolver soon after settling in. No shots are fired. He makes away with 150 bucks, uh, but not for long. He is quickly arrested. Then in 1961, he is sentenced to five years to life for robbery and one to 10 years for grand larceny. A lot more punishment than he received for kidnapping and sexually assaulting a young child. Doesn't seem right to me. He's sent to the Utah State Prison in Draper, south of Salt Lake City. Shortly into his sentence, his second wife divorces him. He would never see her or his second daughter ever again. He gets his GED in prison. Then he's released in September of 1967. And then he's kicked the fuck out of Utah. Uh, Seriously. Part of his release condition was to uh, (laughs) leave and never again re-enter the state of Utah. I love it. I didn't know states ever did that. Uh, It doesn't happen anymore. They got rid of these laws. But states, uh, when there were fewer civil rights laws... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the ones that did exist weren't enforced as often. They could just ban you as part of your release conditions. They could be like, look, we'll, if we fucking see you again, you go back to prison. Uh, 36 Parnell now headed to Phoenix. And actually they stopped doing that because, <laughs> because other states just started doing it back to them and it became this weird, stupid game where you'd be like, you get fucking get out of here. And then California like, nope, you have to get out of here. And they would like just send people around. They're like, God, oh, this is ridiculous. This doesn't work. Uh, anyway, 36 Parnell now heads to Phoenix where he works as a short order cook at a Greyhound track. Claims he left that job to work as a cook for the Playboy Club that existed in Phoenix that time, but may have just been bullshitting. Uh, in a later prison interview, he says he got married for the third time in 1968, but wouldn't say whom. Legal records do not back up this claim. Uh, by 1972, he's back with Mama in Bakersfield. It seems his third marriage, if, the, if it existed, was over by now. Mama must have been overjoyed to have her sweet baby dirtbag boy back under her roof, her sweet living turd. Things wouldn't work out with Mama for long. He'd move out a few weeks later. Maybe she frowned on baby boy looking at kitty porn or leering at kids at the park or dressing up in a little schoolboy outfit, singing and dancing in front of her in the living room. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle. Here is my spot. That's enough, Kenneth. You're not a little teapot. You're a 40-year-old pedophile ex-con who can't keep a woman around who's abandoned at least two kids I know. Get out. Get out of my house. Uh, March 7th, 1972, Kenneth drives from Bakerfield to Yosemite National Park, 170 miles almost due north, leaving his lengthy criminal and psychiatric history off his job application. He's hired in April uh, to be the night auditor at the Yosemite Lodge. Uh, guessing they would have for sure not hired him had they known who he really was. So it says here, you're a sexual psychopath 
and a predator not above a little armed robbery. You know what? I like it. Not afraid to play by your own rules. This is exactly the kind of guy we're looking here uh, for here at the Yosemite Lodge. Uh, eight months later, on December 4th, 1972, Parnell will abduct Carrie Stainer's seven-year-old brother, Stephen. He abducted him when he should have still been in prison. Uh, to pull off Stephen Stainer's abduction, Parnell enlists Edward Irving Murphy, a co-worker at the Yosemite Lodge. Murphy's been described in sources as a drifter who was slow-witted and easily manipulated by Parnell. Not sure if it's true or not, but some sources claim that Parnell convinced Murphy that he just wanted a son to raise as his own in a good Christian home. A former co-worker of Parnell and Murphy uh, at the Yosemite Lodge, Ralph Lurkin, would later describe Murph, as those who knew him called him, as the kind of person that if you needed $25 and he only had 20, he would give you the 20 that he had, and then he would go out and borrow another $5 to give that to you. So maybe he was a good dude, just simple, maybe. Or maybe Murph was a dirtbag too and just hit it like so many do. A dirtbag or fool, Murph approached Stephen on his way home from school. Acting on instructions from Parnell, Murph was passing out gospel texts to boys walking home from school that day. He spots Stephen, walks up to him, claims to be a representative from a church that needs donations. He asked if Stephen's mother would be willing to donate to this church. Stephen said she probably would. Murph then asked Stephen where he lived, if he could take Murph to his house. Stephen agrees. You know, he's a little kid. This guy seems nice. Parnell pulls up in a white Buick. Stephen gets into the car thinking he's headed home and his family would not see this poor kid again for seven years. Parnell first took Stephen to a cabin in Cathay's Valley, or Cathay's Valley, about 60 miles from Yosemite Lodge, where Parnell worked, and 22 miles north of Stephen's home in Merced. Merced's 81 miles, about a two-hour drive from Yosemite, uh, from the lodge there. Uh, Merced's 60 miles from El Portal, where Stephen's brother, Carrie Stanner, would later work and kill. And that very first night, after presenting Stephen with a Manchester Terrier puppy he named Queenie, Queenie, a puppy Parnell's mother had actually just given him, Parnell began molesting Stephen forcing him to perform fellatio on him over and over again, right? The same thing that had uh, happened to him when he was a kid. So if anybody should know how fucking horrific that is, it's him. Then he begins uh, full-on anally raping the 60-pound child 13 days later on December 17th. Stephen was so young, he didn't understand what was even happening to him. He would say later he didn't even know what sex was, didn't know he was being molested. He stated later that after his abduction that it was just scary and confusing, but he didn't understand how actually wrong it was. Stephen repeatedly to told Parnell that he wanted to go home, to which Parnell now replied that his parents couldn't afford to keep him anymore and that a judge had given Parnell legal custody of him. And again, this kid's seven, first or second grade. Uh, Parnell begins calling Stephen Dennis Gregory Parnell, says that's your name now, keeping Stephen's real middle name and real birthday when he would later enroll him in various schools. After a few weeks, the two move away from Cathay's, uh, Cathay's Valley. Uh, why? Because Parnell found out that in one hell of a coincidence, Stephen's maternal grandfather had just moved into a trailer about 200 feet from the cabin he was keeping Stephen in. Holy shit. If Stephen would have seen his grandpa, if he would have screamed and screamed loud enough, his grandpa may have heard him and seven years of hell would have been reduced to a few weeks. Well, the two moved frequently around California after this. They first drive to Santa Rosa, just over 50 miles north of San Francisco. 18 months, they bounce around the Santa Rosa area between ratty motels, low-income slums, usually paying by the week, while Parnell works a series of menial labor jobs uh, as a short order cook, usually, leaving Stephen wherever they were staying. He was too young, had been too manipulated to leave. He didn't know where to go. Parnell had convinced him that a judge really had given him custody, that his family really was okay with that, that they actually couldn't afford him. His first Christmas away from his family, Parnell uh, brings him presents. You know, he wraps, wraps these presents for him. He gets a toy gun, a toy bow and arrow, Hot Wheels racetrack set, really fucking with his kid's mind. His provider... Uh, and the predator that constantly bounced back and forth between father figure and rapist. 
Parnell soon started hiring babysitters to watch Stephen while he worked. Uh, before the first one arrived, Ken indoctrinated Dennis slash Stephen uh, with some Parnell family background, though not the complete truth. And Parnell cautioned Dennis never to ever say anything to anyone about his being taken from Merced or the uh, by then almost daily sexual abuse, threatening Dennis with a severe spanking and being locked up in a children's home for years should he ever say anything about their secrets. After Christmas, Ken uh, begins working as a day front, uh, day front desk clerk at the Santa Rosa Holiday Inn. On January 2nd, 1973, he registers Stephen in the second grade at Steel Lane Elementary School in the Bellevue Union School District. He's pulling off his fucked up evil fantasy. Everyone thinks his kid is his actual son. By this time, Parnell had brainwashed Stephen into really thinking that, uh, you know, he was Stephen's adoptive father. The following school year, Parnell actually um, goes to the home of the parents of a kid who had been picking on Stephen and sticks up for him. So strange, right? He's still continuously raping him, but also protecting him in other ways, spoiling him in some ways. Uh, he soon lets Stephen start to drink at an early age, allows him to smoke, virtually come and go as he pleases. Uh, sometime in mid-1974, Parnell brings a woman home he'd known for about a year. He and Stephen had recently moved and she and her husband, Bob, were neighbors. Stephen was uh, best friends with her son, Kenny. And now one night, this woman, Bar Barbara Mathias, after separating from Bob, her husband, comes home drunk with Kenneth Parnell. And Parnell makes his nine-year-old son, well, son in quotes, fake son, have sex with her. So now he's being shared with other pedophiles. Barbara and Kenneth would live together for 18 months. And according to Stephen, Barbara would rape him on nine separate occasions during that time. As Stephen entered puberty in late 1974, Parnell now began to look for another child to kidnap telling Stephen he wanted to, quote, build his family. So fucking gross. How much do you hate this dude now? Kenneth tried to get Stephen to facilitate the kidnapping for him, but all their attempts mysteriously failed, after which Parnell would berate, sometimes beat Stephen for being incompetent. Uh, now young Stephen begins to question his origin story with Parnell. He begins to think that the story about a judge awarding Parnell custody of him was bullshit. He begins to understand that Parnell is a kidnapper, that he had been kidnapped. Years later in interviews, Stephen would admit to intentionally sabotaging Parnell's attempts to kidnap other kids. After a botched kidnap attempt outside of the Santa Rosa Boys Club, Kenneth, Barbara, and Stephen, who now uh, identified as Dennis or has been identifying as Dennis for quite some time, move 80 miles north to Willits, a small town in Mendocino County. Uh, Willits has around 5,000 people and random trivia. On October 16th, 1867, election day that year, a long-running local family feud in Willits between the Frost and Coates families came to a head. One family was for the Confederacy. One was pro-union. And near the voting booths, they got to John with each other. The talk turned into fisticuffs. And then soon some guns were drawn and the brawl turned into a downtown shootout, leaving four Coates family members, one Frost family member dead and three others wounded. Uh, hog folk, dog folk. That's one hell of a family feud match. Uh, and Willits, Stephen slash Dennis enrolls in a new school. He's in fourth grade. By the end of that year, he knows for sure what Parnell is doing to him sexually and how truly wrong it is. He knows what rape is now, what sodomy is, uh, what was still frequently happening to him. Due to Parnell being unable to hold down a job in Willits, the trio then moves again to Fort Bragg in Mendocino County, 34 miles west, right in the coast, another town of about 5,000 people. In Fort Bragg, Stephen would get arrested for shoplifting. Uh, he's 10 now. It's the first time he'd come into direct contact with the police since he'd been kidnapped. He would say later he didn't even consider reporting Kenneth for kidnapping and raping him. He was too worried about the police not believing him and about how hard he would get spanked with a belt for being caught shoplifting. In the spring of 1976, our other pedophile, Barbara, has her divorce with Bob finalized, gets full custody of her four youngest children, one being Kenny, Stephen's best friend, 
And now they're all living together in Mendocino County. And then Kenneth soon tries to molest Kenny. And Kenny fights him off, tells his mom. Soon afterwards, but not right afterwards, because Barbara was a fucking piece of shit too. Barbara and her kids move out. And by July of 1976, it's just Kenneth and Stephen again. Now alone with Parnell once more, the rapes become much more frequent. Soon, Ken and Stephen move again, just 30 miles north to Comchi, California, another little census-designated place on the coast, only around 150 people, a fair amount of other communities around it. And the two would live here for over four years, and Stephen would later say that he loved his life in Comchi. Uh, He said, I spent a normal life at Comchi. I went through school. I played on the football team. I went through the routine of marijuana that kids experience. I experienced my first date as every kid has experienced. I had a lot of friends. I loved the place. I didn't think too much about my own family back then. I was afraid I might end up at a boy's home. So I just really thought, why don't I just leave well enough alone? Had this poor kid. Stephen loved most of his life, of course, at Comchi. He didn't love uh, all of it because the sexual abuse was continuing. Uh, he would save this time years later. Because of the sexual abuse, I was always scared of Parnell. And a lot of time I felt violence towards him. Yeah, I bet. The sex was just whenever he felt like it. It was really fast. When he was in the mood, we did it. it. Just took a couple of minutes and it was over. I was dressed and out the door. The anal intercourse was painful. Parnell screwed me about a hundred times and about half the time he split my butt. Jesus Christ. It hurt, but he just ignored me. It was like in the case of a man raping a woman. The man is not thinking about the woman's feelings. Parnell had a split personality. When the urge hit him, he was somebody different. And after he'd done it with me, he always just went on like nothing had happened. We'd just sit down and have a meal or something. Just do what we'd normally do. My God, this shit's been going on for four years now. Started when he was seven. Whew, what Parnell has been doing to Steven has just become his, his like new normal. What an incomprehensibly evil and selfish thing to do to somebody. Uh, Kenneth also molested, uh, you know, some of uh, Steven's friends, at least three, took nude pictures of a fourth, uh, took nude, nude pictures of Steven, propositioned several other kids, tried to kidnap others, and he didn't get in trouble for fucking any of this. By mid-1979, Ken's sexual interest in Steven, now 14, is waning, and he's beginning to look more seriously for another kid to kidnap. He again tries to get Stephen to help him. The two move to a nearby place called Mountain View Ranch in 1979 near Boonville, California, 20 mile, 21 miles southwest of Ukiah. That fall, Stephen becomes a freshman at Mendocino High School, uh, even though it's 40 miles away. It's where his friends are. Dennis, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Stephen tries out for, wins a starting position on the Mendocino uh, high, high School freshman football team. And then Ken, still, of course, pretending to be his dad, uh, goes home, to, goes to home games, cheers on the kid he'd kidnapped almost seven years earlier, had been abusing ever since. So fucking weird. And by the way, T- Dennis, if I say that sometimes, it's because he was going by Dennis now. Late in 1979, after the football season, tired of driving Stephen slash Dennis to Mendocino, Stephen transfers to the much closer Point Arena High School. And Ken is now trying to talk Stephen again uh, into kidnappings, you know, uh, numerous ones around Santa Rosa. He keeps refusing. Finally, Ken talks a friend of Stevens into helping him, a kid named Sean Poorman. Now, why did Sean agree to help him other than for some extra money that Kenneth was paying him? I don't, I don't know. Locals from the area at the time seemed to paint Sean as a troubled youth who uh, was a local drug dealer. Uh, a lot of kids didn't want their, or a lot of parents didn't want their kids around him. Uh, was Ken also molesting Sean, grooming him in some way? Maybe. I would say probably, but never proven. On February 14th, 1980, Valentine's Day, Parnell and Sean kidnap five-year-old Timothy White in Ukiah, California. And this kidnapping finally motivates Stephen to escape. He didn't want to see a young boy go through what he had gone through, so he decides to bring Timothy back to his real parents. On March 1st, 1980, while Parnell is away at a night security job he'd just recently taken, 
Before he had raped five-year-old Timothy White, Stephen leaves with Timothy and hitchhikes into Ukiah. Stephen didn't know Timothy's home address. So instead he just uh, walks him into a police station, asks for help. Uh, once inside the station, Stephen tells police his story, the whole story, an exhaustive search of missing child posters and several interrogations confirms that Stephen was the missing child he claimed to be. Stephen's written police statement given in the early hours of March 2nd included the following. My name is Stephen Stainer. I am 14 years of age. I don't know my true birth date, but I use April 18th, 1965. I know my first name is Stephen. I'm pretty sure my last is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I don't know it. By daybreak the following morning, Parnell has been arrested again. The nightmare is over for Stephen and Timothy. Both kids are reunited with their families. And now get ready to get more upset, Meat Sacks. Justice will not be served. Kenneth Parnell was tried for kidnapping Stainer and White, but not charged for any of the sexual abuse he'd committed. Not tried for that. None of it. Why? Well, it's a little complicated, but basically after a lot of digging around, it sounds like the Mendocino district attorney at the time had shit for brains and was just fucking terrible at his job. Sounds like a lot of people really fucked up Parnell's case. Uh, And some of the laws uh, at the time on the books were really ridiculous as well. The Merced County district attorney's office where Stephen had been kidnapped and initially raped when interviewed later said that they were led to believe that the Mendocino County DA's office where the trial would take place would prosecute Parnell for his many sexual assaults on Stephen, uh, assaults committed in their jurisdiction. The Merced Police Department had interviewed Stephen after he was returned home to his family. And they documented, based on Stephen's confessions, evidence of Stephen having been raped 87 times, you know, for their whatever legal stuff. But this is so ridiculous because of a crazy three-year statute of limitations law having passed uh, on the initial Merced County rapes since Stephen had been kidnapped for seven years, hadn't been in the county, uh, you know, uh, for well over three years, they couldn't prosecute those rapes. Basically, Parnell was rewarded for being really good at kidnapping. Had he stayed with Stephen in Merced County, had he been caught after raping Stephen for two and a half years, he would have been sent to prison for life. No question. No possibility of parole. But since he took Stephen out of the county, kept him away for more than seven years, they couldn't legally prosecute him for the crimes committed there. That's fucking, for the molestation crimes. And the Merced Police Department was then furious when Parnell wasn't prosecuted for the sex crimes by the Mendocino County's DA, well within the statute of limitations. So why weren't those crimes prosecuted? Well, Mendocino County Chief uh, Criminal DA George McClure said essentially that Mendocino County District Attorney's investigator, Dick Finn, fucked this case. That he was terrible at his job, that he had no balls. When McClure learned that Merced Police had provided Finn with evidence of Parnell's 87 separate sexual assaults on Stephen, plus evidence of sexual assaults on nearly a dozen other boys who weren't named in the sources. He angrily told Mike Eccles, the author of the book, one of our best sources for this episode, I know my first name is Stephen, that Finn never shared any of this with him prior to deciding what charges to hang on Parnell. He said, if in fact these assaults happened and if there was sufficient evidence there that I could put on a good case, then I would blame whoever it was that was supposed to give them to me, and that person was Dick Finn. McClure said Finn thought the kidnapping charges were just easier to convict on than the pedophilia charges. He said that Finn said to him regarding the sexual assaults, uh, we're not going to go any further on it because we probably aren't going to be able to do anything much anyway. He thought it would be really expensive, ultimately would not end in convictions, and it seems like everyone else around him, at least looking back with hindsight, thinks he's fucking crazy to have thought that. 
Uh, and because Parnell was not charged with any of the sex crimes and only charged with two counts of kidnapping, and because at the time in California, it has changed since, the maximum sentence for kidnapping was seven years and both kidnapping charges would run concurrently instead of consecutively. This motherfucker was only sentenced to prison for seven years in 1981 after all that bullshit you just heard. And he would only serve five, less time than he'd kidnapped Stephen for. How truly disgusting. Like what a fucking colossal failure by the system, right? The laws on the books at that time fucking were bullshit. Edward Murphy, old Murph, old Murph dog, Parnell's accomplice from Stephen's original kidnapping was sentenced to five years imprisonment, paroled after two. Uh, Sean Poorman, the teenage friend who helped Parnell in Timothy's kidnapping, was sentenced to a term in a juvie work camp. And Barbara Mathias, Parnell's girlfriend, the one who allegedly raped young Stephen nine times, was never charged with shit. She cooperated with authorities in Parnell's trial to avoid charges. What an insult to the victims. Uh, we have to change the way people can cooperate with authorities to avoid punishment. I, and, and I think by the way to do that is to make uh, a lot of the punishments much more severe. Like if the punishment for hurting kids was, for example, being pulled apart by a team of horses or slowly being skinned alive, just having your skin flayed off or being like really slowly lowered into a, like a giant boiling cauldron of oil, then the plea bargain could be not as severe as that, but still pretty fucking hardcore. Like you could testify against your pedo friends and only end up with being electrocuted. Right. Or like only life in prison. I don't know. It's just, I'm, I'm just spitballing. Just trying to toss some thoughts around. Uh, because he got out of just a few years, Parnell's life of misdeeds didn't stop there. Of course he didn't. That's what makes this story so much more disturbing. <sighs> Our fucked up uh, priorities having criminal justice system lets out a monster and to no one with half a brain surprise, he continues to be exactly what he was, a monster. I just, I just can't stand people who think that these people can be rehabilitated. No, they can't. No, they fucking can't. When you're, when you're this much of a just dedicated predator, you should just be fucking killed. On uh, January of 2003, finally away from the prying eyes of the parole officer he'd been checking with for a while, Parnell is arrested yet again. This is preposterous. He tries to coerce his caregiver into buying him a four-year-old boy. He, he's kept going younger. Parnell at this time is 71 years old. He's in poor health. He's suffering from diabetes and emphysema. He's suffering from other ailments brought on by a stroke. He needs almost 24-hour-a-day nursing care in the cluttered apartment in the 2600 block of Matthew Street he lives in in Berkeley. He was on a whole barely alive, but his evil dick, the most alive part of him by far, on the edge of death, still wants to fuck more kids. The caregiver, Diane Stevens, is aware of Parnell's past, cooperates with police in setting up a sting operation. She hates this piece of shit. Fucking hail Diane Stevens uh, that would lead to his arrest. She pretends to have a lead on a kid who is not real. And then, uh, he, and then he gets arrested. According to Stephen's later testimony, Parnell requested that the child have a clean rectum. Jesus Christ. Which indicates exactly what this piece of shit had in mind. Uh, he was just a fucking, this guy was such a heinous, just evil boner that just happened to have a body attached to it. Uh, Parnell paid $100 for a birth certificate, had $400 with him for the completion of the transaction, he was to receive the child on January 3rd, 2003. Instead, he's arrested that day. Uh, he told authorities, I wanted a family. Mm-hmm. I had a real weird notion of what a family was. Uh, Parnell was convicted uh, February 9th, 2004 on the charges of attempting to purchase a child and attempted child molestation. Didn't get charged with a sex crime in Stephen Stainer's case. Did get charged with a sex crime in this instance, even though the kid he wanted to molest didn't really exist. Uh, hopefully an indication that uh, better sex offender laws now exist than there used to be. 
The prosecution successfully argued that objects of a sexual nature and pornography found in the apartment, he's fucking almost dead and he still has his porn, along with Diana's testimony, were enough to prove that Parnell's intentions were criminal and sexual in nature. Of course they were. Prosecutor Tim Wellman, very familiar with the Stephen Stainer case, argued his case before the jury by showing a slideshow of Stephen Stainer marked by the number one, then Timothy White marked by the number two, then a blank screen marked by the number three to show that the child that would have been abducted if the police hadn't been notified would have for sure been, you know, uh, also molested. Wellman said Parnell was looking for one last hurrah, one last Stephen Stainer, one last Timmy White. Parnell remained incarcerated until his death on January 21st, 2008, at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. He died of natural causes at 76 years old. He had finally been sentenced to 25 years to life under California's three strikes law, which is great. But you know, years ago, you could have gotten that same sentence for selling Molly and LSD. You could have gotten caught selling Molly to music festival attendees three times and received the same sentence as someone who was kidnapped and repeatedly fucked three different kids or multiple different kids. I mean, not, not that third kid because the kid wasn't real, not necessarily Timothy White, but lots of kids. Uh, so, you know, good job court system. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, glad that a lot of important decisions have been decided by the best and brightest minds. Luckily, the three strikes laws in California was finally modified in 2012 to not be as harsh to nonviolent offenders. Proposition 36 said revised the three strikes law to impose life sentence only when a new felony conviction is serious or violent. Okay, done with Kenneth Parnell now. Crazy how insane all that was. And it doesn't have you know anything to do directly with the initial Yosemite killer story we set out to uh, look into today. Carrie Stainer. But indirectly, I think it has a lot to do with the Yosemite killer. Although Carrie Stainer wasn't legally one of Kenneth Parnell's victims, uh, he definitely was a victim of Parnell, a man he never met. It's just so easy to mention the families of victims. Just leave it at that. Do we uh, often think about the psychological toll that a murder or seven years of rape or, and molestation takes on uh, people who are close to the victim? Ah, now after all that, a true crime suck all, all to itself. Uh, let's get into the real meat of today's tale in today's Time Suck timeline right after today's sponsor break this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. if you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day what would you do with it work out sleep read a book play Fortnite, call your mom take judo lessons finally watch all the episodes of shameless a lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time but why time for what if time was unlimited how would you use it the bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour but what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. 
They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now, let's meet the Yosemite Killer. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. August 13th, 1961. Carrie Stainer is born in Merced, California, an agricultural town of about 65,000 people that sprawls across the eastern flank of the San Joaquin Valley and calls itself the Gateway to Yosemite. As of the 2010 U.S. Census, Merced County's population was just over 255,000, up from just over 210,000 at the 2000 Census, and the total area of the county is approximately 1,980 square miles. Uh, Google says roughly 280,000 live there now. And the city of Merced is the county seat and its largest city. Uh, The county name derives uh, from the Merced River, 
or El Rio de Nuestra Señora de la Mercedes, uh, the River of Our Lady of Mercy. It was named in 1806 by an expedition headed by Gabriel Moraga, which came upon it at the end of a hot, dusty ride. Uh, and Carrie would grow up in a pretty, pretty idyllic, blue car, uh, largely blue-collar Merced community, despite what happened to his brother. Stainer, his three sisters, Cindy, Corey, and Jody, and his younger brother, Stephen, raised in a little green shingled house on Bett Street in, lower, in a lower middle-class neighborhood at the edge of town. Uh, we weren't able to find birth dates for Cynthia or Cindy, uh, Corey, and Jody. Very little is written about them. Uh, even the book on Stephen that would go on to be adapted to become a uh, TV miniseries and movie, I Know My First Name is Stephen, doesn't mention his sisters. Uh, a Carrie Stainer true crime biography titled The Yosemite Park Killer also doesn't mention them. I had to look at their dad's obituary and Stephen's obituary, and one of them being mentioned in an LA Times article to confirm that they even, you know, for sure existed. Uh, Corey and Stephen's father, Delbert Stainer, was a mechanic who worked for various canneries, made a solid middle-class paycheck. Their mom, Kay, ran a daycare business, worked uh, food service jobs and high school cafeterias. Three and a half years after Carrie was born, on April 18th, 1965, his baby brother, Stephen, also born. Uh, around this time, well before Kenneth Parnell enters the picture, Carrie starts to show signs of mental instability. He begins to nervously pull his hair out, ends up wearing a hat to hide all the hair he's pulled out. He ends up getting diagnosed as having, uh, it's trichotillomania, trichotillomania, an impulse control disorder that causes people to pull their own hair out. This, this disorder is classified under obsessive compulsives and related disorders and involves recurrent irresistible urges to pull hair from the scalp, eyebrows, eyelids, other areas of the body, despite re repeated attempts to stop or decrease hair pulling. Other mental health disorders, uh, people with uh, trichotillomania, often have are anxiety, depression, and obsessive compulsive disorder. High levels of stress tend to trigger trichotillomania. Was little Carrie super stressed out, uh, you know, uh, that a new boy showed up in the family, took some attention away from him? I don't know, maybe. Was he stressed out about something else going on at home? Maybe. Some weird stuff going on in the Stainer household that I feel like uh, we'll never know the full details about. Uh, one source, a biography written by uh, Jack Rosewood about Carrie, says that while the Stainer uh, mom, Kay, was emotionally distant and not affectionate. The child's, uh, the children's father, Delbert, was too affectionate. Delbert was ordered into treatment uh, early into Carrie's childhood after being accused of sexually molesting one of his daughters. He was apparently never charged, but if true, this accusation doesn't show up in any source I can find, uh, maybe things weren't as idyllic as they seemed in the Stainer household. Uh, any other source, yeah. Uh, trichotillomania would be the first of many mental disorders experts would diagnose and carry. By the time he was 38, a doctor had testified during his trial that he had more than 20 signs of mental illness. The doctor went on to report various disorders uh, they believed Stainer suffered from, including narcissistic personality disorder and schizophrenia. Unfortunately for young Kerry, clearly struggling with some of his thoughts, his parents were real against therapy. Uh, they did take him to see someone when he almost pulled his, all of his fucking hair out, but in general, Delbert saw wanting to go talk to someone about your feelings as a sign of weakness. He probably didn't like uh, going to see a therapist because, you know, uh, make him confront his uh, own pedophilia. That's true. Uh, Carrie's aunt, Anna Jones, who lived nearby at the time, said it would have helped if they had gotten some therapy, but you just didn't think of it back then. You told yourself you were strong and you could handle it. Uh, and I do bet the overwhelming majority of American blue-collar families weren't big on therapy back in 1965. Unfortunate, sure, but also typical of the time. Outside of some extreme hair pulling, Carrie's early childhood seemed to be free from any major traumas. Starting when Carrie was a small boy, the Stainer family vacationed together in Yosemite and the high country surrounding it often. They'd pile into the Stainer family van, drive 60 or so miles east to camp, fish, hike, sometimes hunt in the beautiful mountains. 
around late 1968, early 1969, according to what Stainer later told investigators, as well as a news reporter, he started fantasizing about killing women. Uh, he recalled a particular incident while shopping with his mom, uh, uh, musing about shooting all of the store employees. But a couple problems with this uh, possible memory. First, he was, when he reported this, really trying to get out of a life in prison sentence or a death sentence uh, by getting an, an insanity defense plea. He had a lot of motivation to convince the judge he had been suffering from pathological murderous impulses for years. And second, uh, I also thought about fantasizing, or I also, sorry, uh, fantasized about killing people uh, back in early childhood. Right? It's normal. Come on, right? Say it is. Uh, I'm doing that shit my whole life, and I have yet to kill anyone. Gosh dang, N not JK, actually. People can be really fucking annoying. And I'm not ashamed to say I find tremendous joy in thinking about eliminating strangers from the planet on a daily basis. I, I find it very cathartic. Uh, kind of like physical masturbation can, I think, help prevent uh, people from making a terrible sexual decision, like cheating on a partner. Uh, some mental murder masturbation, in my opinion, uh, can keep you from stabbing the fuck out of some asshole at the bar who can't seem to keep his drunk ass from bumping into you over and over again and not acknowledging it. You know, it keeps you from actually doing that. Then again, uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe we're both crazy. And and, and again, maybe uh, Carrie Stainer was having these thoughts when he was a kid, or maybe he was just beefing up his eventual insanity defense for his crimes. Uh, a cousin of Stainer's, Ronnie Jones, would later remember Stainer being antisocial around girls when he was younger. He wondered years later if this indicated that maybe Carrie was having dark thoughts about women. Uh, he said he doodled pictures of naked girls in a notepad. And uh, am I Carrie Stainer? When I, when I was in grade school, I also was socially awkward around girls. Uh, they made me nervous. Uh, and I also drew naked girls in a notepad. Not sure what was going on with Carrie. My impulse to doodle naked girls came from, uh, I, I like to think, less from a kind of pathological type of perversion and more from an inability to find pornography in my tiny Idaho hometown. I had to literally make my own porn. Uh, Hail Savina? Weird, maybe, but A for effort. Uh, later, Carrie and cousin Ronnie would frequent the Merced River together, and as Ronnie would remember it, when Ronnie would run down to Skinny Dip with some girls, Carrie refused to join him. He thought that was weird. Now, why was he refusing to join them? I don't know. Did he, uh, you know, wonder if he got naked around some uh, naked girls? Uh, he wouldn't be able to restrain himself from killing them. Or did he have a tiny Ed Kemper micropeen ween and he was just embarrassed? Mother, why is he dragging my micropeen into this episode? Does he forget I'm still alive, mother? Incarcerated at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. I could escape at any moment, mother, and put his head on a stick. Maybe Carrie did have murderous impulses, dark desires towards women when he was a kid, or maybe he was just a typical kind of awkward boy. When Carrie was 11 in late 1972, his somewhat idyllic childhood comes to an end. His uncle, Jerry Stainer, molests him. The guy I mentioned is Jesse earlier. Now, Jerry Stainer molested Psychiatrist George Woods would later testify in court during Car Carrie's trial for murders that although the uncle's sexual proclivities were well-known to Carrie's older male cousins, he was nevertheless allowed to take boys for overnights in his tiny apartment. What the hell is going on in this family? Right? They got like a known pedophile uncle. Dad's going to counseling for some type of molestation situation with at least one of his daughters. Ah, God, what the fuck is going on here? Why, why are these kids uh, heading over for a sleepover with Uncle Jer Bear? Uncle Sleepover? Seems suspicious. I wouldn't let my kids go over for a sleepover with Uncle uh, Jer Bear. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is, is that sexist to me because he's a dude? Because that is why I wouldn't want to let the kids over there. Because would I care as much as if it, if it was a sleepover with an aunt? I know I wouldn't. I wouldn't care as much. Why? Mostly because of stats. Because the math doesn't lie. According to race2as.org, race against abuse of children everywhere, an estimated 80 to 90% of sexual offenders are male, while only 10 to 20% of offenders are female. And that's actually kind of on the high end. 
According to a 2019 Conversation.com article referencing numerous studies, current research, they say, suggests that only between 1% and 9% of sexual predators are women. Overwhelmingly, a lot more uncle sleepovers have kid diddling on the list of activities than auntie sleepovers do, which really sucks, I know, for all the good uncles out there. I'm sure the overwhelming majority of uncles are safe. Still, you're going to want to give those lone wolf uncles some extra eyeballing before you pack your kid's sleepover bag for their house. Sexist or not, I never let my kids stay the night with, a, with just a dude. Just like a random family dude. Other than their stepdad, who's a good guy. But even with him, I used to grill my kids about good touches, bad touches, all that shit. You know, maybe I'm paranoid. I don't care. I'm okay with my kids thinking I'm paranoid and crazy. If it makes me feel safer, it helps keep them safer. Anyway, at the sleepover, Uncle Jer can't keep his wing clean, showed Carl and his cousin nude pictures of girls. Then he invited young girls. So he's showing them kitty porn. Then he invites the two young boys to sleep in his bed with him. Then in the middle of the night, Stainer wakes up to find the uncle removing his underwear, attempting to molest him. Carrie is able to get out of the bed, avoid what could have been worse, but the incident's still serious, still traumatic. Uncle Jer, charged, later convicted for child molestation. And then whatever attention is paid to Carrie in regards to him, uh, you know, healing from this event, it's over in a flash. If he needed therapy, which I imagine he did, he didn't get it. If he needed to talk to his parents, doesn't seem like he got much of that either. Just a few weeks later, all the family's attention would turn towards his brother's disappearance. On December 4th, 1972, as you learned earlier, Carrie's little brother, seven-year-old Stephen, abducted by Kenneth Parnell, that fucking devil. Carrie is 11. Carrie's childhood friend, Mike Marchese, or Marchese, uh, later said in 1999 that after Stephen's kidnapping, Carrie was very upset. I heard stories about him going out and wishing on a star that his brother would come home. I believe he was supposed to have been with his brother. So I believe that there was some guilt with Carrie on the fact that maybe he felt a little responsible. God, think about that. Think about the guilt an 11-year-old feels when he's supposed to uh, walk his little brother home from school, doesn't, and then his brother gets abducted. Guessing his parents yelled at him more than a few times over this. What, what does that do to an 11-year-old head? Shortly after Stephen doesn't make it home from school, after exploring the route he took between home and school, his parents sound the alarm. They call the police. They search and search and search. Posters are put up all over the place. Stephen's picture is shown on the news. It's a big story around Merced. Uh, a parent's worst nightmare. Kid goes missing on the way home from school. Volunteers looking all over the place. There's an intense search for many weeks. Flyers put up for months. But as we know, they found nothing. Now for the next seven years, the only traces of Stephen Gregory Stainer in the Stainer family home are snapshots and memories. Recollections of a quiet, sweet boy who had once tended to a fallen owl, who liked to ride his dad's tractor around on the family almond ranch near Snelling. They put up billboards, passed out leaflets, consulted psychics. According to family friends, they were never the same again. Yeah, how could you be? Carrie later said, before Steve disappeared, I always thought my dad was like the rock of Gibraltar. Never trembled at all. All of a sudden, one day, December 4th, 1972, my little brother is gone and my dad is crying all of a sudden. Never saw my dad have a tear in his eye my whole life. All of a sudden, life changed. Carrie's mom, Kay, uh, born Roman Catholic who left the church over being emotionally and physically abused in a Catholic boarding school. So much fucking abuse in this family. Then joined the LDS faith, uh, raised her family as Mormons. She becomes cold and distant, seldom displaying physical affection towards her children. She loses herself in her sorrow, in her faith, trying to make sense of it all. Kay would later tell People Magazine in, 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 ah, in an interview, I more or less closed up. I didn't leave the house for a year. And if I had to, someone else had to be there in case Stevie came home. I chose to believe he was alive. Delbert was openly devastated by the loss of his son, according to uh, some, his favorite son. He said in that same People interview, I went berserk for a time. I'd ride around on my pickup with a sawed-off shotgun on the seat in case I saw someone with Stevie. 
I began to suspect everyone had something to do with it. Friends, neighbors, even family members. If a child dies, you bury the child. With a missing child, you have a knot in your chest that never leaves. So this family is fucking destroyed. Carrie would sometimes find his father rummaging through Stephen's dresser drawers, weeping. Delbert once chewed Carrie out for painting over the name Stephen that his younger brother had scratched once into the garage door. Carrie's aunt uh, said that the four kids remaining in the Stainer's ho- uh, Stainer house became like ghosts in a house filled with heartbreak. She said maybe the other kids didn't get as much love as they should have because of all the pain and sorrow. Around this time, Carrie starts acting out a bit, especially towards women. Uh, he exposes himself to one of his sister's friends at a sleepover. Not sure what her age was. I think it was close to his age. Not sure how serious it was either. Uh, kids do do weird shit. And of course he's acting out. Why wouldn't he act out? Uh, who wouldn't act out? You know, his parents don't seem available to talk to him about anything that's going on. He's not talking to a therapist. Carrie's place to escape the emotional pain of all this is to go to Yosemite, to head out to nature. Uh, by the time he's a teenager, he's an accomplished outdoorsman and his favorite outdoor destinations are in Yosemite. Uh, He's also spending a lot of time on his drawings. In high school, he finds a measure of self-expression as a cartoonist for the high school newspaper, The Statesman, showing so much promise that classmates assume he will someday draw his own comic strip professionally. His cartoons are featured throughout the yearbook, humorous uh, caricatures of his fellow students playing tennis, looking cheerful and silly. He's voted most creative at his school his senior year in 1979. And I get the feeling his parents didn't really give a shit about his accolades here or his doodles. Martin Purdy, a friend of both the Stainer brothers, remembered Carrie as kind of a quiet guy. Our days would be just get on our bikes in the morning, go to the park, hang out with friends or skateboard, he would later say to uh, ABC News. Classmates also remembered Carrie as shy and modest. He had no interest in talking about his brother. Well, yeah. I mean, why would he want to talk about that? Hey, Steve, uh, mind if I sit next to you to eat? Hey, hey. so like uh, your little bro is like still missing, right? (laughs) Like, Like for years now. Oh, man, what do you think, dude? Probably dead? That's what I think. Oh, man, were you supposed to walk him home or something from the school that day? Dude, that sucks, man. I feel like shit if that was me. Man, do you feel like shit? Hey, what's wrong, man? You seem sad. Oh, you don't want to talk about one of the most painful memories of your life right now at school? Weird. Whatever, dude. You're fucking bumming me out, man. I'm out of here. Uh, March 2nd, 1980. Stephen is reunited with his family at 14 years old. Carrie is 18. All right, how shocking is this? He, gradu- he graduated high school about nine months earlier. He's still living at home. Carrie is returning from a camping trip in Yosemite with some friends. Here's a radio report that his 14-year-old brother, Stephen, had escaped from his abductor and would be arriving in Merced that afternoon. Carrie later tells reporters that he almost drove his car into the Merced River. He was so excited to see the brother he had assumed for years was dead. Can you imagine that? That mindfuck. Holy shit. Thinking you had lost someone, a child, sibling, parent, whoever you're close with, for seven years. Then they show up at the house. Uh, that day, Stephen comes home to a hero's welcome, moves back into the tiny bedroom he'd once shared with Carrie, you know, years earlier. The contrast between the two brothers, uh, very stark. Despite going through hell and back, Stephen is cheerful and engaging, a people pleaser. Outgoing, very willing to talk about his experience. Uh, Carrie is quiet, sullen, loner, a brooder. Stephen, despite having been subjected to continual horror for years, is by all appearances a happy-go-lucky, jovial kid. Uh, he soon gets a girlfriend. All right, he's quick to smile, carries the opposite, not quick to smile, shows no interest in girls, no interest in most other people, has a small circle of friends. Outside of that is a loner who likes to be outside in the woods. And these two brothers who were close before Stephen was taken do not become as thick as thieves upon Stephen's return. There's tension almost immediately. First, there's the uh, massive media attention to deal with for the family, a true crime book, a TV movie, uh, both titled I Know My First Name Is Stephen are made about the ordeal. Within days of his return home, Stephen is on Good Morning America, His parents are over the moon to have their kid back. Of course they are. 
It was the nonstop Stephen parade at the Sainter household now, and this all left Carrie feeling really jealous. In an interview with J.P. Miller, a screenwriter who spent a long period with the Stainers doing research for a 1989 NBC miniseries, he vented his frustrations about his brother. Carrie told Miller, his head was all bloated out. We never really got along well after he came back. All of a sudden, Steve was getting all these gifts, getting all this clothing, getting all this attention. I guess I was jealous. Yeah, I'm sure I was. I got put back on, I got put on the back burner, you might say. Then in the midst of getting all this attention, Stephen starts acting out and having problems at home. Right after returning to his family, Stephen has trouble adjusting to a more structured household because with Parnell, he had been allowed to smoke, drink, do what he pleased. In an interview with Newsweek shortly after his escape, Stephen said, I returned almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me as uh, saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know. Sometimes uh, if I should have come home, would it have been better off or would I have been better off if I didn't? So that's fucked up. And so fucked up about the dad. This not hugging shit is mentioned in several sources and in interviews. It makes me sick. Steven said in another interview that his dad would not look him in the eye after he comes back. Was not affectionate at all with him once he heard what Parnell had done to him. So true or not, Steven seemed to interpret his dad's emotional distance as disgust regarding the sexual acts he'd been involved in that had been forced upon him. How fucked up. Steven is now being emotionally re-victimized, made to feel shame over shit he never wanted to have happen in the first place. Dude was a hero to save that other kid, little five-year-old Timmy White, and his dad can't bring himself to even hug him. Steven's parents were also not supportive of their abducted son getting counseling after coming back home. Not good. Not a big fan of the Stainer uh, parents. Uh, he told his dad, uh, or he said later his dad told him he didn't need any counseling. Steven also ended up being bullied by other kids at school for being molested, and eventually, because of that bullying, drops out. How tragic is that? Kids can be such pieces of shit. You get molested for seven years and then your dad won't hug you or look you in the eye. And then also the kids at school mock you for being molested. Steven begins to drink frequently. Of course he does. He eventually gets kicked out of the family home before he turns 18. Meanwhile, Carrie, uh, he's heading off to the mountains more and more. Uh, he'd become depressed towards the end of high school. He didn't really pursue a, car a career as a cartoonist, even though everybody said he should. Uh, he didn't want to go to college. A former friend said it was like, he just decided that he was a loser, even though his peers saw so much talent in him. He sat around his room a lot of the time, smoked weed a bunch, waited for the next camping trip. Uh, he drifted through a series of relatively menial jobs for the next 18 years, hauling furniture, exterminating insects for a pest control firm, uh, working for an aluminum company, finally getting uh, a job at the Merced Glass and Mirror Company. That was his longest uh, term of employment. There he would work with Mike Marchese, uh, that guy we mentioned earlier, who would later recall about Carrie. He'd say a woman was nice looking and he'd go so far as saying it would be nice to get together with her but nothing ever came of it. People thought it was odd that Carrie never had a girlfriend because he seemed to like girls. He was smart, talented, and really good looking. He described, you know, a lot of sources, ruggedly handsome. Uh, they didn't know he suffered from erectile dysfunction at this time and was embarrassed by it incredibly. And that led to awkward feelings towards women. And it may have led toward a lot of anger towards women. Man, more limp dick rage. How much does this come up? Echoes of Chikatilo here. What is big deal? So I have soft shamecock. Why not go to doctor? They may have many treatment now. You should get it taken care of. No need to suffer and bring misery to others. There are many medicine. And, uh, <laughs> JK, it is too fun to wrestle. Uh, I thought Chikatilo was uh, evolving for a second there into a better meat sack. Uh, in 1985, Steven Stainer, now 20, marries 17-year-old Jody Edmondson. Right, Despite all the shit he's going through, he's moving forward with his life. They dated for a year beforehand. 
The two would go on to quickly have two kids together, Ashley and Stephen Jr. Uh, They struggled financially, as many young people do, uh, especially young parents. They live at first with Jody's parents, then with some cousins in their mobile home uh, with three jobs between them. Despite these hardships, things seemed okay. Stephen seemed to be getting his life together uh, more than his brother Kerry was. He worked with child abduction groups, spoke to children about personal safety, gave interviews about his kidnapping. Good for him. How fantastic, right? Using what happened to him to help others avoid the same fate. About as noble as it gets, dude was a hero. Hail Nimrod. Stephen wanted to make sure nothing like that ever happened to, you know, another kid again. Accompanied by his mother, Kay, Stephen would testify before the Ways and Means Committee of the State Assembly on a bill that would increase penalties for kidnapping children and another requiring parents to have their kids fingerprinted. He also joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, becoming a Mormon like the rest of his family. He'd obviously not been going to church with Parnell. Uh, he got a job he liked at Pizza Hut. And then on May 22nd, 1989, the made-for-TV movie, I Know My First Name is Stephen Ayers. And uh, while 24-year-old Stephen is being treated as a bit of a local celebrity, his 27-year-old brother, Carrie, is now getting way into Bigfoot. Uh-huh. Around this time, Carrie claims to have had an interaction with Bigfoot. They saw him up in Yosemite. Bet you did not see that twist coming. Uh, he surprises friends and family members by claiming to have seen Bigfoot, the legendary half-man, half-ape of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, a desperate attempt to direct some attention away from Steven and onto himself. Oh, wait, 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 hold on. I'm sorry. Uh, someone's knocking at the uh, suck dungeon door right now. This is uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, resident cryptologist David Childers here. Uh, I would not rush to the speculative conclusion that Carrie lied about seeing Sasquatch in some kind of uh, misguided uh, attention grab. Second to Washington State, you should know that California has the most total reported Bigfoot sightings in the United States. Many Sasquatch sightings have been reported in Yosemite. Uh, thought by some to be the home of the most Bigfoot activity in the world. Uh, he could have also mistaken the Fresno Nightcrawler, another humanoid cryptid off-spotted in Yosemite for being a Sasquatch. Uh, David, I keep telling you uh, that I never hired you to be a resident cryptid expert. Uh, yeah, no, I, I realize it's more of like a volunteer. David, please wait out in the hall. We can talk about this later. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, no problema. Uh, sorry about that, everybody. Uh, Carrie did suddenly get way into Bigfoot. His cousin, Kathy Amay, uh, said Carrie spoke about Bigfoot all the time. Uh, she said he absolutely knew that it existed. You couldn't have told him anything different. Another family member who gave an anonymous interview said, I remember when he first had told me and my brother of what he had seen. He would go very blank in the face as if he's being very serious or like somebody was watching him. He would tell us about the smell the creature had that it was a lot bigger than him. <laughs> we were very young, but we knew he wasn't playing a joke on us. I remember when I went to Camp Green Meadows in the sixth grade, he told me to stay close to the teachers, no matter what, do not go out at night. He never really seemed the same to me after he thought he had seen Bigfoot. <laughs> Such a weird twist here. Uh, the weird way that Carrie talked about the creature made it difficult to know whether he feared it or identified with it. Uh, very strange. Tragedy then strikes again. Shortly after the premiere of that made-for-TV movie, September 16th, 1989, just over a month after Carrie's 28th birthday when his younger brother, Stephen, dies. Just before 5 p.m., Stephen is finished with his shift at Pizza Hut at 16th and G Streets. It had been raining heavily. His manager, Todd Smith, suggested he drive the franchise's pickup home and stay dry. Stephen reminded Todd that his license had been suspended, that an accident in the truck might not be good for Pizza Hut business. He declines the offer. He rides off uh, down on Santa Fe Drive on his motorcycle at 4.55 p.m., three miles later, at a less-than-they-posted 50-mile 55 mile per hour limit, he rams into a car that according to California Highway Patrol investigators pulled into the street ahead of his cycle. At 5.35 p.m. at the Merced Community Medical Center, young Steven Stainer is declared dead. His skull had been fractured. He had died from massive brain trauma. 
the driver of the car, none other than the man who had abducted him all those years ago, Kenneth Parnell. That sexual predator had been released from prison several years earlier, looking for Stephen, recognized him, pulled out in front of his motorcycle. He'll be charged with manslaughter and he'll serve 60 days in jail. Fucking kidding me. I'm actually kidding myself. That was fucking nonsense. It wasn't Parnell. That piece of shit was living free though. In 1989, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened in this weird story. No, the driver was identified by officers as Antonio Larea, an employee of a tomato packing company. And he fled the scene. He later surrendered in Tijuana, was returned to the US, arraigned on felony hit and run and manslaughter charges. A sad, reckless, ironic end for Steven. He died driving a motorcycle he was not licensed to operate. A blue and white 1989 Kawasaki X500. He wasn't wearing a helmet. He had bought the motorcycle with some of the $30,000 he had received for signing over the rights to his story for I Know My First Name is Steven. 500 people would attend his funeral. Timmy White, the kid Steven had saved when Timmy was just five, is now 14 and is a pallbearer. One of Steven's sisters, Cindy, said at his funeral, she kept waiting for the telephone to ring. This is so sad. She said, someone will say it's okay. Stevie's here. He's alive because that's what happened before. Jesus Christ. Jody, his 20-year-old widow, was left with two children and her husband's troubled legacy. She found solace in the fact that Stephen wasn't hurting anymore from past trauma. She chose a special inscription for her husband's casket. It said, going home. The following year, 1990, 28-year-old Carrie is now living with Uncle Jer. Yes, that Uncle Jer. Another weird twist. Uncle Sleepover. Uncle Jer can't keep his wing clean. How weird is that? What the fuck is going on in this family? He's living with a guy that was convicted of trying to molest him as a kid. Carrie had settled into a job repairing windows for Merced Glass. Jerry was a truck driver for a, 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 hay, a truck dispatcher, excuse me, for a hay company. Later that year, in late December, just before Christmas, 42-year-old Jer is found sprawled dead in his bedroom with a shotgun wound to the chest. Carrie is questioned about the killing. He's the one who found Jerry's body when he came home from work. But he has an alibi. He said he'd been at work when the shooting took place. He was not considered a suspect at the time. Police focused their investigation on an unknown vagrant whom Carrie claimed had been lurking around the house shortly before the killing that no one else ever saw. Uh, the vagrant was never found. The murder went unsolved. After Carrie's arrest uh, later for four murders in Yosemite, police would begin looking into the possibility that Carrie was the one who probably killed Jerry. I, I'm going to guess he did. 1991, Carrie attempts suicide by carbon monoxide inhalation is unsuccessful in his attempt. Did he receive any kind of psychiatric care afterwards? Uh, we don't know, but probably not. Next five years, not a lot to report on. Kerry spends a lot of his time alone when he's not working at the Merced Glass and Mirror Company. Uh, he goes to Yosemite National Park as often as he can to look for Bigfoot. <laughs> not kidding. What a weird detail. You know, we've gone over a lot of serial killers uh, here on Timestock. I can't recall one, uh, you know, covering one before who was real into Bigfoot or any other cryptids. Uh, a psychiatrist who would later examine Kerry said that Kerry uh, thought Bigfoot was tied to, quote, the meaning of life. Okay. Then in 1996, the maybe not, uh, you know, terribly mentally stable Stephen loses his shit. A former coworker, again, this guy, Mike Marchese, uh, goes out into the yard of the Merced Glass and Mirror Company to find Kerry slamming his fist against a piece of wood and bleeding, uh, you know, profusely from, a cuts, from cuts on his hand. Mike asked him what was, what was up. Kerry says he feels like he's having a breakdown, that he's nervous. He doesn't know why. He said he felt like getting in his truck, driving into the office, killing everyone there, and then burning the place down. Okay. Mike then tells him he may have a chemical imbalance. And Kerry says, I've been told I have, but nothing's ever been done about it. I was hoping he'd say, I don't have a chemical imbalance, Mike. Bigfoot does. He's the one who wants me to kill everyone. Don't you see? Don't you see? Uh, company owner Gordon Eckes caught wind of what went on. He personally drives Kerry to a Merced Psychiatric Center where he's counseled. Soon afterwards, Siri uh, Stainer comes back into the Merced Glass and Mirror office, picks up his last paycheck, 
and then they don't see him again ever. He tells former coworkers he's thinking of moving to Santa Cruz to pursue a cartoonist career. Unfortunately for future victims, he would not do that. Instead, after either not being able to get another job around Merced or not trying to, he just heads to his happy place, Yosemite, now to live there. In 1997, Carrie Stainer heads to the little town of El Portal, just outside the park, that little census-designated place we mentioned earlier. Now 35, he drives his car, a 1972 pale blue international scout, to El Portal before even looking for a job. It shows up and hopes they'll find one. He soon, fi- he soon finds one at the Cedar Lodge, seven miles outside of Yosemite, a sprawling complex of rustic pine bungalows that straddled the Merced River. And he begins working there as a handyman. Carrie rents a room above the Cedar Lodge restaurant and lounge, a 1950s-themed diner with red Nagahide banquets and a, a vintage jukebox. Sounds like a place I would love. And he does odd jobs around the motel. He was a cool guy who mixed easily with the rest of the staff, according to a waitress at the diner. She'd say, at night, we'd, ha- we'd hang out, watch a video in somebody's room. He was totally likable. He was ordinary. Uh, no, he wasn't. Sometime in 1998, Carrie starts to date a woman whose daughter later did an ABC interview going by the name of Lena. Lena didn't mention the name of her mother. Lena was just 10 or 11 years old when her mom began dating Carrie, uh, started having a relationship with him. Her mom was a waitress in the restaurant below the apartment where Carrie lived. He seemed like a safe person to be around uh, to Lena's mother, Lena and Lena's younger sister. He brought the girls illustrations. He would draw himself. He would buy them new Beanie Babies uh, each time he'd see them. Lena said he also taught her and her sister how to drive. Uh, Lena said he was uh, a big teddy bear towards her and her sister. He was just our friend. I loved Carrie. My sister and I adored him. My sister and I would be walking up the driveway and we'd see Carrie Stainer coming up in his scout and jump in the truck and he'd give us a ride up to our house, she said. Lena said she could only remember one occasion which Carrie Stainer made her feel uncomfortable. They were all in the Merced River, she said, when he started removing all of his clothes. Why did he do that? Well, she didn't say, but we'll soon learn why. Uh, Carrie was sexually attracted to her and he was having some real fucking dark fantasies about her, her sister and their mom. Lena's mom was also the first real girlfriend Carrie seemed to have ever had. That coworker of his back at the glass company said that uh, one time when the subject of girlfriends came up, Carrie said he had never dated a woman for more than a few weeks. Lena would recall later that Carrie always carried a backpack, uh, which authorities would later describe as containing his murder kit. It contained a gun, duct tape, and a knife. And she would learn later that she very nearly avoided Carrie using the backpack's contents on her and her family. After Carrie Stainer's arrest, Lena said FBI agents contacted her mother. Uh, She said, the FBI went and spoke with my mom privately to let her know that Carrie Stainer had confessed to initially wanting to kill my mom and rape and kill my sister and I. My mom was extremely shocked. That's when our lives were flipped upside down. My mom went off the deep end and harbors a lot of guilt. I don't blame my mom at all. Nobody could have known. Holy shit. Some teddy bear Carrie Stainer was. How much would that fuck with your head to hear that? That this dude, this kind of father figure your mom was dating, who you looked up to, who you thought was this, you know, super nice dude, actually wanted to rape and kill you, do the same to your sister, also kill your mom. The family learned from the FBI that Carrie Stainer had nearly killed them on three separate occasions. The day he'd gotten arrested for four murders, Carrie Stainer had gone looking for them, but Lena and her sister just happened to be at their grandma's house when he came by. Had they have been home, uh, his confirmed body count would have jumped from four to seven. In February of 1999, around two years after showing up on El Portal, Stainer is still working at the lodge, living in that room above the lounge, thinking a lot about Sasquatches probably. And then on the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, he sees Carol's son, 42, and her daughter, Julie, 15, arrive in their bright red Pontiac Grand Prix rental with Julie's friend, Silvina Peloso, 16, an exchange student from Argentina. Carol had, plan- Carol had planned the fateful trip to Yosemite National Park two months in advance, a reward to her daughter for doing well in school. Her husband, Jens, stayed home with their three other kids. 
They picked up a flashy red rental car at the airport, made their way to Yosemite. It was the dead of winter, and the uh, Cedar Lodge was mostly deserted, with much of the staff on hiatus until the spring. At Yosemite, they spent a long day admiring El Capitan, Half Dome, other granite monoliths, ice skating in Curry Village in the Yosemite Valley, and taking snapshots along the Merced River Gorge. At some point, Carol talked to Jens on the phone. Carol said they were planning to go through the park again, but had concerns about construction at the entrance. The conversation lasted less than four minutes, and it would be the last time Jens would speak to his wife. The three women had dinner at the Cedar Lodge restaurant, then strolled back along dimly lit pathways lined with wooden statues of bears and bald eagles to room 509 in the far west wing of the hotel. That same day, Carrie Stainer had stalked four young girls staying at Cedar Lodge with the intention of abducting, raping, and killing at least one of them. He ended up backing off because they were accompanied by a man. He decided on targeting Carol, Julie, and Sylvina after spying them through a window. The next day, February 15th, 1999, Carrie puts a horrific plan into action. At 11 p.m., Carrie, who was carrying a toolbox with duct tape, rope, a knife, and a gun hidden inside, knocked at the door of 509, identified himself at the motel, as the motel handyman. There was a leak in the room above, he explained, and he needed to check whether water was dripping through the ceiling. Suspicious, Carol looked around and said there was no sign of a leak. She refused to let him in. He then told him if he couldn't come in and fix it, they would just have to move to a different room. And not wanting to deal with that hassle, Carol does let him in. Carrie chatted with her for a moment, fiddled around in the bathroom for a minute or two, then walked back out of the bathroom brandishing a gun. He tells Carol and the girls not to panic. Sadly, they don't. He, uh, he says he's only come to rob them. Then he binds, gags them with duct tape, places Sylvina and Julie in the bathroom, and then turns to Carol's son after shutting the door. She's lying on the bed. Silently, quickly, he strangles her with the rope. Does not sexually assault her, was not part of his dark fantasy. He takes her car keys, drags her corpse out to the dark, deserted parking lot, heaves it into the trunk of the Pontiac while the two teens are still bound and gagged in the bathroom. I didn't realize how hard it is to strangle a person, Carrie would later coldly and calmly say in a taped confession. It's not easy. I had very little feeling. It was like performing a task. After stuffing Carol into the trunk of her rented Pontiac Grand Prix, Carrie rips and cuts the clothes off the two girls, leads them back into the, uh, onto the bed. He commands them to perform various sexual acts on one another. They don't comply. They're terrified. They're crying. He becomes so irritated by Sylvina sobbing that he leads her alone back into the bathroom, shuts the door, quietly strangles her as, uh, as she knelt in the bathtub. He then sexually assaults Julie in the family's motel room and in the room next door where he took her to use the bathroom, not wanting her to see Sylvina's body. He tries to rape her, is unable to penetrate her as he is unable to get an erection. The damn ED... He'd probably been stewing on it for years, and his impotence seemed to fill him with the murderous rage. Finally, he leaves Julie on a bed, tied up, watching TV, uh, while he cleans up the crime scene and dumps Sylvina in the car trunk with Sund, uh, with Carol, and arranges the room to, uh, so it appears that the women had checked out and left. I felt like I was in control for the first time in my life, Stainer later said on tape, uh, that confession tape. He's cleaning, his cleaning of the room was so thorough, he even got all of his hairs off of the bedsheet. Later, an FBI agent asked him why he did that. And he replied, I watched the Discovery Channel. Uh, roughly five hours after the attack began, at about 4 a.m. the next morning, February 16th, Stainer wraps Julie naked in a pink motel blanket, drives away in their rental car with her bound in the passenger seat. Her mom and her friend's bodies are in the uh, you know, trunk. I don't know. I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, he later told investigators. I just kept driving and driving. Along the way, he comes to like Julie, who told Stainer her name was Sarah. She was a very likable girl, he said. She was very calm. Liking her did not make him uh, want to not kill her, though. With dawn approaching, Stainer turns off at Lake Don Pedro and carries Julie up a worn dirt path to a small clearing overlooking the water. He said, I told her I wished I could keep her. 
some seriously creepy shit to say. He then sexually assaults her again. No word from the sources on the state of his impotence during this attack. Then this fucking maniac brushes her hair, fans it out on the ground beneath her head. He said he then told her that I loved her and then cut her throat. She made a hand gesture to him after he cut her, which he interpreted as uh, her asking him to finish her off. And he looked away while she died over the next 15 to 20 seconds. At least that's what he said. Did she really gesture to him like that? I fucking highly doubt it. Uh, I really doubt she wanted him to, quote, finish her off. Strongly assuming a lot of this shit only happened in his head. Stainer would say, I didn't want her to suffer the way the other two did. Not sure if that's true. He drove the knife so hard into her throat, he nearly decapitated her. Uh, after hiding her body in a, in a thicket, he drives the car with the bodies of Carol's son and Silvina Peloso in the trunk so uh, as far as he can into the forest. He then walks two miles into Sierra Village, telephones for a cab after dawn. The cab driver, Jenny Paul, was bemused by the haggard-looking man who asked to be driven to the Yosemite Lodge. She never reported the trip to police until after Stainer's arrest. Months later, she remembered an unusual conversation that transpired along the route. Her passenger asked, do you believe in Bigfoot? No, she replied. You should, he said, because he's real. And then he paid the fare with 150 bucks uh, he'd stole from Carol's purse. These fucking Bigfoot details are killing me. <laughs> Carrie wouldn't get the insanity plea he'd hoped for at his upcoming trial, but he was clearly as I once heard a kid say growing up, nuttier than squirrel shit. The fuck is going on with this guy? The in-staff claimed that when they cleaned uh, room 509 the next morning on February 16th, they detected no evidence of foul play. Checkout had been done in advance. Keys left on the front desk, as was customary. Uh, Jen's son, Carol's husband, and Julie's father had scheduled to meet them at the San Francisco airport that evening on his way to Arizona. Well, while he attended his meeting in Arizona, his wife, daughter, and her friend were going to tour the Grand Canyon. Uh, that's uh, um, what he thought. He did not find his wife at the airport, assumed she had flown ahead. Uh, the next day on February 17th, Carrie returns to Carol's, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I got confused by Carrie and Carol. Carrie returns, it's right. Carrie returns to Carol's rented Pontiac Grand Prix with a can of gasoline. After scratching, we have Sarah. Remember uh, uh, the um, his daughter, the, um, oh my God, Julie's, Julie's son uh, told him her name was Sarah. Uh, he scratches that on the hood with a pocket knife saying we to throw off investigators. And then he sets the car on fire. Then he drives two hours west, dumps Mrs. Sun's uh, billfold insert onto a Modesto street corner to further throw police off his course, and it would work. Uh, just like his brother Stephen had vanished 27 years earlier, now three women had vanished. Several days after Sun's and Peloso's disappearance, a wallet, driver's license, credit cards belonging to Carol are found, but there's no sign of the woman or their Pontiac Grand Prix rental car. Uh, no sign of the women, excuse me. And the last days of February soon stumble into March. Uh, the public still is hoping that the women will be found safe. In Modesto, a march and vigil are held for the missing persons. They think that's where they went missing was in Modesto. Unofficially, Jen's sons now offers a $250,000 reward for info that will lead to the return of the missing women. After a couple weeks, he ups it to $300,000. Mrs. Son's parents, Francis and Carol, uh, appear on Good Morning America to entreat the prayers of Americans to help locate their daughter and the kids. Over a month after the murders, Carol's son's rental car is found, March 19th, 1999. Two charred bodies are in the trunk, right? Sons and Pelosos. A hiker discovered the vehicle in the mountains of the Stanislaw County, over 30 miles from the lodge where Stainer abducted them. The same week, the two bodies are found, an anonymous letter is sent to the FBI with a hand-drawn map. The disturbing note, later determined to have been uh, written by Stainer, read, we had fun with this one. Again with the we, to make investigators think there were at least two attackers, which they did. Also, he paid a young uh, Hispanic kid to spit into a cup used that spit to seal the envelope, which further threw off the FBI. They ended up looking primarily at Hispanic suspects for weeks because of the DNA they found on the envelope. 
The map he sent to the police uh, led them to an overlook at the Don Pedro Reservoir, several miles from the logging trail where the car had been found. There they find Julie's son's corpse. A massive manhunt is now launched to catch the murderer or murderers. For several weeks, hundreds of FBI agents, California Highway Patrol officers, uh, National Park Service rangers comb Yosemite's rugged backcountry and the adjacent Stanislaus National Forest with dogs and helicopters. Two dozen FBI agents commandeer part of the headquarters of the Stanislaw Hotshots, a forest firefighting squad based in the old gold rush town of Sonora, to sift through evidence uh, as they collect it. TV crews and reporters swarm over the Yosemite area, descend on the Modesto Holiday Inn, where the families of the missing tourists maintain a vigil. Uh, A task force rounds up suspects, arrested uh, several known sex offenders, drug users, and ex-cons with a record of violence uh, from within a 75-square-mile area between Modesto and Sonoma. The police figured that the killer of the three women was someone familiar with the area. Whoever was guilty had successfully maneuvered a Pontiac through rugged terrain, ravines, lakes, dense woods, country roads. Uh, They thought only a native would have been aware of the site where the car was abandoned. The March 29th edition of Newsweek reported the FBI believes that the killer knows the area of abandoned gold mines well enough to hide the car off a spur road where locals dump old refrigerators, cars, and washing machines and well enough to know that the smell of a burning car would likely not attract attention because the air often reeks from people burning their garbage. Unsettled locals are starting to whisper about possible murderers in their midst. By mid-April, the FBI comes to believe that the key players in the sightseer slayings had been arrested and were in jail on unrelated charges. Although not named in print at the time, their names were later published by the Fresno Bee. And these primary suspects were Michael Mick Larwick, 42 of Modesto, part of a vagabond group of meth users uh, and friends centered in the Modesto area. Eugene Rufus Dykes, 32, also of Modesto, uh, Larwick's half-brother, dude with a long criminal record, including sex and weapons convictions. Uh, Billy Joe Strange, a perfect criminal name, 39 in El Portal and uh, parolee who worked at the Cedar Lodge Lounge and Restaurant where the murdered women were last seen. Uh, He was arrested when he allegedly reported to his parole officer with liquor on his breath around the time of the disappearances. Daryl Gray Stevens, 55, Strange's roommate, convicted in 1978 for rape and robbery. He was jailed March 14th for failing to register as a sex offender. Uh, Daniel Neal Cummins, 45, my dad, loves the outdoors, uh, would have been right at home in Yosemite, supposedly living 800 miles away between Riggins and New Meadows and Idaho at the time, but because he can't account for his whereabouts uh, that February because he also didn't know, you know, for certain where he'd been uh, during so, so many other murders in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he is considered a prime suspect. Uh, JK, uh, the running dad gag has not worn thin for me yet. Uh, By the end of June, while no one has been charged, the FBI were sure they had the person or people responsible for killing the three women. Obviously, they did not. Meanwhile, at the Cedar Lodge, Carrie maintains a cool facade, Uh, even escorts FBI agents from room to room so they can gather fiber samples. The only time he seems to have commented on the killings uh, before he's arrested, after these, you know, obviously after the killings, uh, says a female coworker was the afternoon he cast an annoyed glance at a pair of FBI agents having lunch at the diner. He muttered, why didn't the FBI ever search for my brother? Interesting. Did he maybe think he could get away with what he was doing because he didn't think law enforcement was that good at catching people due to how they never found his brother? Uh, On July 21st, 1999, four months after Stainer killed three women and had seemingly gotten away with it, he decides to kill again. Joey Armstrong, who had grown up in Orlando, was one of the most popular members of the Yosemite Park staff a bright, energetic young woman who led kids on hikes through Yosemite's backcountry, sharing her knowledge about the park's history and indigenous plants, animals, and insects. Armstrong and her boyfriend, Michael Raffelli, another instructor, 
commuted a few miles to the Yosemite Institute from their pine cabin, which they called the greenhouse. Conditions at the greenhouse were primitive. They chopped their own firewood for heat, hauled water up to drink from Crane Creek. Armstrong was content with all this. I, I love it here in this house, she wrote to a friend in Florida earlier in the summer. I love Michael with my soul and every last cell in my body. I love the big meadow with all its daisies and incredible history. On the morning of July 21st, Joey Armstrong arrived at the Yosemite Institute around 8, 8 a.m., worked a normal day, then drove the five miles home. Her boyfriend and her other roommate were away. Aware of the murders of the three tourists at the Cedar Lodge, she told colleagues at the Institute that she worried about spending the night on that she worried about spending a night alone at her isolated cabin. Just before dusk, as she packed up her car for her trip to Sausalito, a blue and white international scout came down the dirt road towards her house and stopped. According to his later confession, Stainer stepped out of his vehicle, approached Armstrong's pickup truck and said, hello. Stainer apparently attempted to put the wary young woman at ease. <laughs> of course he does this. By asking if she had ever seen Bigfoot in the area. Adding that he had once spotted the creature in the fields just beyond her cabin. What a weird fucking way to try and put someone at ease. How weird to think that was the, uh, the, the normal type of social interaction you should have with a woman you've never seen before, right? Like he's just in his brain, just, come on, Carrie, think, 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 think. Put her at ease. Uh, make her relax. Uh, uh, what a normal non-murderers I talk to women about. Come on, come on. Uh, car batteries. Nah, no. Uh, she doesn't seem like the car battery type. God damn it, Carrie. Car batteries are boring. You know that. Uh, soft pretzels. <laughs> yeah, maybe. A lot of people like soft pretzels, uh, especially ones covered in big chunks of salt with warm cheese dip. This is good. Okay, this is good. This, this is going somewhere. Wait, Bigfoot. Everyone loves to talk about Bigfoot. Uh, the cab driver, she liked it when I talked about Bigfoot. Uh, my family, not so much, but they're fucking dicks. Uh, this is gonna work. This will definitely make her think that the man she's talking to is not crazy. <clears throat> Excuse me, ma'am. Uh, did you know that Bigfoot lives around here? <laughs> yeah, I've seen him. Uh, a lot of people have. Uh, you can smell him. Uh, he, he's real stinky. Kerry truly was a bit out of his fucking mind. Uh, yeah, uh, David Childers here again. Uh, Stainer is right about the smell. Sightings of the large 7 foot to 11 foot tall bipedal creature are often accompanied by a foul skunk-like odor that... Uh, back in the hall, Childress. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. Sorry about that. Uh, when Kerry realized Armstrong was alone and with his Sasquatch jibber-jabber, not exactly making her uh, want to invite him into her cabin, he pulls a gun, orders her inside the cabin, where he binds her hands, gags her with duct tape. Then he orders her back outside. In the gathering darkness, he shoves her into the front seat of his scout, begins to drive back up the road. Then at the parking area where the dirt track from her cabin joins the forest road, Armstrong manages to open the scout's passenger door, leaps out of the moving vehicle, badass, hail Lucifina. She staggers to her feet, begins running through the brush and trees along Crane Creek, heading towards a cabin where friends of hers live just a few hundred yards away. Stainer jumps out, crashes through the woods in pursuit. Armstrong made it 150 yards before he caught her. He grabbed her from behind, drew a long knife, quickly cut her throat, then slashed her again and again and again until he had literally completely decapitated her. He dumps her body in the drainage ditch, then discards her severed head about 40 feet away. Investigators initially thought Armstrong had been killed by someone she knew that it was a crime of passion. They thought that because of the anger and the rage displayed through the killing, it must have been someone she had some sort of relationship with. Nope, just Stainer. Stainer furious. She had tried to uh, escape from him that hard. Uh, because there had been so much noise and chaos, Carrie leaves the scene of the crime in a hurry, leaves several clues behind, including tire tracks from his vehicle as well as footprints. Carrie returns to a scout, fl uh, fled back up the road towards the Yosemite exit, and he didn't get very far. On El Portal Road, a few miles short of the Cedar Lodge, his vehicle breaks down, and then he flags down a ride from a passing Yosemite Park Ranger. 
The ranger later recalled this tanner had been easygoing, affable, and calm. Nothing seemed strange. You know, just a, just a cool cu- cucumber who just happened to have, uh, you know, cut someone's fucking head off just a few minutes earlier. Now he's just chatting it up calmly, you know, probably talking about Bigfoot. Car broke down, huh? Oh, that's a bummer, man. Any idea what the problem is? Well, if I had to guess, I'd say Bigfoot. <laughs> probably probably messed around under my hood. You know how they are. <laughs> Squatches. Looking for some parts. First time machine or something. Probably just knocked a hose loose. Or <laughs> I'm not crazy. Next morning, Thursday, July 22nd, Dr. Desmond Kidd, Yosemite National Park's medical doctor, had just finished a busy 24-hour shift at the park's clinic. It was, after all, the height of the summer tourist season. And the 36-year-old physician was beat. He was looking forward to heading back to the log cabin he shared with other park employees in Yosemite Village. But as soon as he got back, his pager went off. A park dispatcher asked him to join a search for a missing person. A search, the dispatcher said, with law enforcement implications. Kid was told that Joey Armstrong, an ebullient, strawberry blonde naturalist at the nearby Yosemite Institute and a casual acquaintance of kids had been planning to spend the weekend visiting friends in Sausalito. When she didn't show up, her friends feared something had happened to her. Uh, turning off, uh, turning left off the main Yosemite Highway, Kid steered his Jeep down an unmarked road into forest where 30 cabins inhabited mostly by park employees were scattered along the uh, bottom of a wooded glen. The area was cordoned off with yellow police tape. Joey's white pickup truck still parked in the driveway, packed with luggage for her trip. Having decided to begin their search in the immediate area, the squad split up into five groups. Kid and four other members of the search party walked the woods along Crane Creek. Beneath the hot noonday sun, they bushwhacked through dense brush, watching for rattlesnakes, looking for signs of joy. Uh, joy, And only a few minutes in, Kid spotted a key ring glinting in the sun. Just beyond it lay something else, a woman's body, clad in a white t-shirt and blue jeans. As Kid drew closer, he noticed that something made him gag. Jesus, he said, and ran back to the ranger in charge. We have an 1144. Uh, that's code for a, a dead body. And she's been decapitated. Unsurprisingly, Armstrong's beheading spread fear through Yosemite. Park rangers received a flood of phone calls from parents and youth group leaders asking if certain areas of the park should be avoided. Uh, requests for guided hikes, especially from women, rose sharply. Then the authorities got a lucky break. A park employee noticed a blue and white 1979 International Scout parked near Armstrong's house the night of her death. On the afternoon of July 22nd, the day Joy's body was discovered, two rangers spotted the Scout parked on the shoulder of California 140 in the Merced River Canyon about 12 miles from the western entrance of the park. Descending to the rocky riverbank, one of the rangers, accompanied by a Mariposa County detective, came upon a handsome, solidly built man smoking a joint, sunbathing in the nude. Probably talking about Bigfoot. No big deal, right? Just chilling out naked in the woods, soaking up some sunshine, keeping his eyes peeled, you know, keeping his eyes peeled for squatches. Uh, the man calmly identifies himself as Kerry Stainer, says he's employed as a handyman at Cedar Lodge. Uh, I think he put on some clothes to introduce himself, but I'm not sure. I like to imagine he stayed naked just talked about, you know, Bigfoot with his dick swinging around. Uh, the officer, the officers, officers, I've tried to combine officers and confiscated. Uh, the officers confiscated his marijuana, let him go. No arrest for the joint. I like it. Shortly after this encounter, FBI investigators compare tire tracks at the crime scene with photographs of Stainer's treads and they get a perfect match. They had their guy, a naked murdering Bigfoot freak. On July 24th, Kerry Stainer is arrested at the Laguna del Sol Clothing Optional Resort in Wilton, California. I like this other weird twist. More nudity. Dude got arrested, seriously, at a fucking nudist colony. How great is that? Uh, this place is still in business, by the way. And still nude. Still very nude. Uh, I went to their website. Looks, looks nice. Uh, police discovered Carrie there eating breakfast. Asked if they could talk to him. <laughs> My mind was definitely going with different scenarios of how this uh, little interaction went down. Uh, Carrie Stainer, we need to talk to you. Would you mind putting some clothes on? 
Uh, could you maybe at least cover up your dick with a copy of Squatch Hunter Monthly? Thank you. Uh, what was that, ma'am? Uh, no, I'm not a stripper uh, in a cop suit. No, this is not a costume. I'm a real cop. Uh, ma'am, ma'am, please stop pulling down on my zipper. Uh, sir, that is not a prop. That is a real gun. Hey, hey, you with the nipple rings. No, not you. Other nipple ring dude. Would you mind opening up the door for us? Ma'am, ma'am, would you please stop trying to motorboat me with your titties? I'm on official business. Uh, Stainer goes with the officers to the nearest FBI office. Uh, they recognize him as the brother of Stephen Stainer on the way, build up some rapport. And then Stainer almost immediately confesses to Joy Armstrong's murder. Uh, he then said he had a role in the Sund and Peloso murders and that he would tell them everything they wanted to know. But first he wanted, quote, a good-sized stack of child pornography as condition of his confession. He wanted photos and videos, ideally naked kids, quote, involved in crime scenes. What the fuck? I interpret that as pictures and videos of naked dead kids. He actually asked for that shit like it was a reasonable request, like he was asking for a cheeseburger. He also told the FBI agents that maybe if, the, if he would had more access to kitty porn previously, he wouldn't have had to kill anybody. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Then he says he wants his trial to be held down in Merced. As if that's a thing you could just, you know, request. And then he says he wants his parents to get the reward money, that $300,000 that, that <laughs> Carol's son's husband had offered for clues regarding the whereabouts of her and, and, you know, the other two women. Jesus Christ. The FBI agents are like, uh, no, that's crazy. Get the fuck out of here with all that. And then he just kind of goes, okay. And then he just confesses anyway. He tells the FBI that he had fantasized about hurting women since he was a kid, been un unable to stop his compulsion to kill. Uh, for five months, Carrie had been living under the noses of investigators, fixing leaks, handing out bed linens at the Cedar Lodge until the urge to murder had struck him. Agents had interviewed Stainer twice in the early stages of the investigation, both times dismissed him as a suspect. And remember, he'd been inter interviewed years before for possibly killing his uncle, been dismissed. He just seemed like too uh, nice of a guy, too ordinary, they said. Not only that, but Stainer's background, his own family had been victimized by a monstrous crime, made uh, you know them think that there was no way he could do something like that to anybody else. Two weeks after his arrest on August 6, 1999, Kerry Stainer shuffles into a courtroom at the U.S. District Courthouse in Fresno to answer federal murder charges. His parents, Delbert and Kay Stainer, sat motionless, hand in hand, eyes fixed on their son as he stood before the federal magistrate, clad in a yellow prison jumpsuit, his wrists and ankles shackled, and he enters a plea of not guilty, a strategy that would leave the door open for an insanity defense. His mother cried softly, rested her head against her husband's chest. Their son, grim face, avoided eye contact with his parents. Holy shit, man. Their first kid gets kidnapped, missing for seven years, then shows up, then dies young in a motorcycle accident, roughly a dec decade later. Now their only other son confesses to killing four women in Yosemite. Uh, in a letter to the Fresno Bee that he sent from his jail cell in mid-August, Stainer wrote that I am truly very sorry for the pain he had caused and said that he hoped to sell the rights to his story to Hollywood to compensate the victim's families. How much do you want to bet that his uh, idea for his movie about all this heavily involved Bigfoot? Uh, Kathy's trial or God, Carrie's trial, excuse me. Uh, his name, I just, I don't, I've never met a dude named Carrie, C-A-R-Y. Just never looks like a real name to me. Carrie's trial begins in 2001. During his trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity due to various psychological problems. A doctor testified during Stainer's trial that he had autism, had obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Uh, others would testify he was like schizophrenic, depressed. Stainer's lawyers also argued that Stainer allegedly had to deal with sexual abuse in his past, which could have played a role in him becoming a murderer. Dr. Jose Arturo Silva testified uh, during the third week of Stainer's triple murder trial at San Jose. The Stanford-educated psychiatrist spent more than 21 hours interviewing Stainer in jail, more than three hours talking with his parents. Uh, he sifted through five fat binders containing the defendant's medical history, which included interviews with friends, acquaintances, and the FBI. And he said that Stainer, like his dad, suffered from paraphilia, 
a sexual disorder in which individuals become aroused only by inappropriate objects or fantasies. We talked about that a long time ago with Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, like his mother, he said that stuff, Stainer also suffers from depression. So a lot of shit going on in this family. August 27, 2002, Carrie Stainer is found sane, convicted of four counts of first-degree murder. December of 2002, Carrie Stainer asked for a new trial on the grounds that none of the jurors had been molested. Uh, it is not granted. Uh, I'm surprised he also didn't complain that none of the jurors were uh, squatches or squatch hunters. Uh, Stainer receives a death sentence on December 12th, 2002. He is currently on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California. Although the state of California technically still has a death penalty, California Governor Gavin Newsom extended a moratorium on the death penalty in 2019. Uh, California has not executed any inmates since 2006. Far more likely Stainer will die of old age than be executed. Uh, he's currently 59. On January 21st, 2008, Kenneth Parnell finally dies in prison. May his soul, if he has one, never find peace. On August 28, 2010, a statue of Stephen Stainer and Timothy White is dedicated in Applegate Park in Merced. The statue shows a teenage Stephen, five-year-old Timmy, hand-in-hand, hand, while the two of them escaped their captivity. I love it. Sadly, neither Stephen nor Timmy would live to see the statue. On April 1, 2010, right, just shortly before the statue is dedicated, Timothy, who'd become an L.A. County Sheriff's Department deputy, died of a pulmonary embolism at the age of only 35, and that takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. What a crazy story, right? A tragedy, doubleheader, really tripleheader. You know, Kenneth Parnell, Stephen Stainer, Carrie Stainer. First, the kidnapping. Seven years of Stephen Stainer being raped, then the Stainer family being reunited only to see Carrie and Stephen drift apart as brothers, then Stephen dies in a motorcycle accident, then Carrie probably kills his uncle, then he moves away to Yosemite, kills four women, wanted to kill more. Fuck is going on with the Stainers? Carrie Stainer, what an odd life he led. Uh, he went from a shy artistic boy who missed his brother to a cruel, Bigfoot-obsessed murderer who killed four women brutally, one of them after sexually assaulting her after he'd killed her mother and her friend. Uh, were those final four murders preventable? Would Carrie not have become such a monster if he hadn't have been molested, if his brother hadn't have been kidnapped, if he'd been raised in a more emotionally stable home? He said he'd had murderous urges since the age of seven before his brother was kidnapped. If that is true, would he have found some way to deal with those urges if he'd had a different childhood? How much nature, how much nurture goes into the making of a serial killer? Could you, dear Meat Sack, have been a Ted Bundy or a Carrie Stainer or an Eileen Warnos? had your childhood taken some different turns. Not fun to think about, but, uh, you know, could a certain sequence of tragic events in your childhood turn you into a serial killer? I think maybe. So much of who we are is formed by the way we're raised, by who we're raised by, by what happened to us in our identity, identity forming years, right? Throwing a couple real, real dark curveballs. You know, who could you have ended up as? I don't know. I imagine your nature would have also had to be pretty dark to end up going where Carrie Stainer did. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck, top five takeaways. Number one, pedophile Kenneth Parnell harmed a lot more people than just those he abducted than those he raped. Uh, he also harmed Carrie Stainer, the Stainer parents and countless other family members. He kept Stephen Stainer for seven years, but ultimately only served five years in prison himself for it. Motherfucker. Number two, Carrie Stainer killed four women in four months in the spring and summer of 1999. He stalked his victims before making sure that there wouldn't be others around them to protect them, then killed them brutally. 
He sexually assaulted two young girls before he killed them. He also nearly or fully decapitated two of the four women he killed. Number three, Carrie Stainer believed in Bigfoot. Talked about Bigfoot to the cab driver who's driving him back after he dumped Julie's body. What the shit? Number four, after seven years of continual abuse, Stephen Stainer got away from Kenneth Parnell because he didn't want to see another boy Timothy White could take advantage of like he'd been. Then Timothy became an LA sheriff's deputy, putting himself in danger in order to protect others. Couple bright spots. Such a dark story. Number five, new info. Carrie Stainer was sentenced for his crimes in Yosemite National Park, but did you know there is a legal theory out there where uh, some people think you could literally get away with murder in part of another U.S. national park? Yellowstone National Park is almost entirely within the state of Wyoming, but a slither of it reaches into two other states, Montana and Idaho. And the Idaho part is where the danger or opportunity is thought to be. Brian C. Colt, a law professor at at Michigan State University College of Law, had a good look at this region, published in an academic paper entitled The Perfect Crime back in 2005. In it, Colt wondered about a hypothetical place where there were not enough eligible citizens to form a jury and theorized that there could be no trial and therefore no punishment for major crimes in that area. He later realized there is such a place, the Idaho section of Yellowstone National Park. Say you decided to murder someone in the Idaho section of the park. If you're caught, you'd be arrested and taken to Wyoming to be tried. The U.S. Constitution, however, demands that any trial should be held in the state where the crime itself was committed, which in this case is Idaho. So you demand your constitutional right to be tried back in Idaho, where they then take you. A local jury would then be called up, but Amendment 6 states that the impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed is required. And in this case, the state is Idaho, but the district is Wyoming. That means that the only people available for the jury must live in the Idaho section of Yellowstone, but no one lives there. It's federal land. No one's allowed to live there. Uh, (laughs) So unless you allow uh, them to try you in Wyoming, they legally cannot try you at all, technically. No known felonies have yet to be committed in this zone of theoretical lawlessness. I doubt you could get away with murder there. But if you just have to murder someone, it's probably the place to do it, right, in in the U.S. I mean, but don't do that. You know, I'm not not telling you to do that. You know, I'm not saying that's a good idea. But, you know, if if, if someone needs to be murdered, then maybe that's the place you do it. You know, just maybe just J.K. I don't know. Just thinking. I'm just thinking some crazy thoughts. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Yosemite Killer. The abduction of Steven Stainer, story of Kenneth Parnell, has been sucked. So much drama, tragedy centered on one family. Uh, man, if you were on the fence before about, I don't know if you know laws against pedophiles should be more harsh. Uh, I hope you're not anymore. After that Kenneth Parnell bullshit. Man, uh, God, just what a crazy, crazy story. Really sucked me this week. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck every week. Uh, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Doctor Joe Paisley, the script keeper Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan, the Art Warlock Keith, running BadMagicMerch.com, working on our socials along with Liz Hernandez. Uh, thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad keeping Discord fun. Congrats to the Raven Queen, currently in the lead of round nine on the, on the Time Suck Trivia little game we have in the app with four thousand two hundred and forty-five points. New round, round ten starts on Monday, April fifth at three p.m. Pacific time. Uh, we stick with true crime next week on Time Suck. Uh, We get dark and we get smelly. We get pretty much covered in pig shit with Robert Picton, one of Canada's most prolific serial killers, the butcher of Vancouver, a.k.a. the pig farmer killer. As the son of pig farmers who didn't give two shits about personal hygiene or their kids getting a solid upbringing, Robert first turned to butchery as a living, and then this uh, weird hillbilly turned to a very different kind of butchery. This guy is so fucking disturbing and cartoonishly horrific. He doesn't even feel real. He feels like a B-horror movie villain come to life. 
He'd ultimately be arrested in 2002, and the subsequent investigation of his house of horrors would yield evidence of numerous other murders, ultimately leading to his being charged with 26 murders. He would dispute that. He would tell an undercover agent he had killed 49 women, one shy of his goal, his stated goal of 50. Who were these women? They were women that polite society preferred to ignore. There were women struggling with drug addiction, who had turned to sex work for money to fuel their addictions, many of them struggling with homelessness. They lived in Vancouver's east side downtown, which rapidly became Robert Picton's hunting grounds. He'd take them back to his pig farm where they would meet their doom, maybe be incorporated also into some pig meat that may have been sold and consumed by Vancouverites. Seriously, how could such a thing happen? How did Robert get away with it for so long? What in God's name was happening at his nightclub called Piggy's Palace? This ridiculous story in next week's deep dive into the disturbing world of Robert Picton. And now let's head on over to a not disturbing world of this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Kicking things off with some positivity after all that darkness. Uh, inspired Meat Sack Justin Sostry writes, wait, actually Justin gave me a phonetic uh, spelling for his last name. Sostry. Ah, there we go. Justin Sostry writes, hey, fuckface. <laughs> awesome. Now that I have your attention, I can continue. The main thing I want to say is thank you. As I'm writing this, I'm listening to the Victor Frankel 2020 wrap-up episode. I started listening to Time Suck in November of last year. You have been one of my favorite comedians since at least 2010, or whenever Crazy with a capital F came out. Uh, for the longest time, I refused to listen to podcasts because I thought the idea of someone just talking for hours would be stupid and boring. How wrong I feel now. All my work days are now filled with tales from all over the world and throughout history. I'm writing this email because I finally feel like I have a direction to shoot for in my life. I recently came to the cult when it was still in existence. It'll be back about going through a hard time and one of them pointed me to a book, Man's Search for Meaning. I'm a slow reader, kept putting it off for a few weeks, then decided to get the audiobook. I listened to it last week. Now I feel like I can look at my life a bit more accurately. I'm still in the pursuit of my why, but I think I've narrowed it down. As I was listening to the Frankel suck, I got to the point where you mentioned Grandpa Ward passing. Needless to say, my allergies were severely acting up. Fortunately, I was already home from work when this happened. That's when I had to stop the episode and try to write in. My father passed away five years ago, December 29th, he was an amazing man that gave his kids and wife all he could and so much more. Most of this time, I felt lost and not sure what to do with my life since he left. I feel like I should uh, I have been living without any purpose. Slowly, the haze has been lifting through this time, and I can feel myself becoming more the person I was before I lost him. I'm so lucky to have found someone that pushes me to become the best version of myself and was part of the reason I got back to feeling like my old self. Uh, my beautiful girlfriend, Megan, trying to get her in her time suck. She really enjoys scared to death, so at least there's that. Uh, even though I didn't listen to the podcast when it started, I did listen to your comedy all the time. Wanted to say thank you. Thanks for being such a bright light in this world. Your dark comedy gives me more than I can put into words, which is always so funny to me that dark comedy, uh, brings people out. I, I love it though. Uh, and this podcast filled my heart with hope. Well, now that I'm dehydrated from all the allergies, I'm going to finish this episode, become a space lizard. I've been waiting a while to do that because I wanted to catch up. I'm basically there. What is a big deal? Thanks for reading my ramblings. Hail Nimrod. Praise Josefina. Glory be to Michael motherfucking McDonald. Sincerely, uh, Justin Sostry. <laughs> I like how you also uh, provided phonetics uh, spelling for Justin. Uh, P.S. Please do another shroom suck. P.S.S. If you ever look into Paul McCartney is dead, I think that would be an interesting suck in my opinion. Uh, yes, thank you, Justin, man. Glad you're on the path to finding your why. That's such a cool thing. Uh, we did get into the Paul McCartney is dead conspiracy uh, on the secret suck a while back. And, and I think in an upcoming episode of Time Suck, we're going to explore that one and numerous other celebrity-based Conspiracies in one one episode. Glad you found Megan. Uh, she sounds like a great influence. And sorry about your dad. 
I'm sure he's proud of you for taking charge of your life, for doing what you're doing, uh, you know, and um, pursuing happiness as much as any meat stack can. And yes, shrooms. I need to get more. I, need, I keep forgetting to get more. I need to recalibrate my mind again for summer. Next up, happy sucker Karina Hammond has a great update to share. She writes, dear Suckmaster, I'll keep this short and sweet. The waste of oxygen named Joseph Duncan was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Hail Nimrod and let's hope it's painful. Yep. Hail Nimrod. Uh, that fucking piece of shit. Not expected to make it past the summer. This past fall, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He is choosing not to receive treatment. He is still writing the occasional blog post. That fifth nail bullshit he's allowed to write. Uh, his most recent post from January, he writes about, uh, you know, how most of the people around him are rude to him. Doesn't talk about his victims at all. 80% of the post is complaining how rude the guards are to him, how the nurses don't seem to care much about him. Uh, yeah, buddy, they don't care. He's your monster. Uh, you belong back in the dirt from whence you came. So soon one less child killer will be breathing. Uh, super sack Matt Lee had an allergy attack last week at work. Let's hear about it. He says, Dan, you son of a bitch. I just finished listening to the Pop Award Suck at work. Bad move. I made it all the way to the end and lost it. Mind you, I'm a fabricator, special effects tech for Stranger Things. Oh, what? That is so cool. I missed that the first time I read this. Oh my God, it's fucking awesome. Uh, I love that show. Typically consider myself to be pretty tough. Fast forward to listening to this episode. I'm crying like a bitch. <laughs> I'm crying like a bitch in the middle of the FX shop. Hearing the way you reminisce and tell stories about Pop Award brought back, uh, uh, or brought me back to my family story about my papa. All the things I didn't get to say to him before he was taken from me, all the things I never got to ask him, the fact that he never got to meet my daughter. I've since retreated to the bathroom to ugly cry and to tell you that I hate you for this, but also to thank you for making me think back on so many fond memories. Three out of five stars, loyal space lizard, creeper, dummy Matt Lee from Atlanta. Uh, man, thank you, Matt. It is good to remember, isn't it? Even when it's painful. Helps keep the dead with us. Keeps, keeps them alive. Uh, glad you had a good papa. Man, it's a special thing. Sorry about the ugly cry. You know, it's uh, it, you probably won't even cry. Someone was probably eating an onion or something near you, you know? Probably wasn't even a motion. Yeah, you're good. Uh, super sucker Avery Metcalf now has his own grandpa tales to share. Avery writes, Dear Dan, I felt compelled to write you after listening to the Ward Hall episode. My condolences to you and your family. Uh, I frequently listen to Time Suck during early morning drives. Uh, to the boat ramp and long days on the wall and during long days in the water for bass fishing tournaments. That's awesome. Uh, the reason I'm writing today is my grandfather passed away January 3rd, 2020 at age 89. Oh man, almost exactly the same. Uh, age never, to say that was a tough way to start 2020 is an understatement. My grandfather, Aubrey James Metcalf Sr. had a lot of similarities with your grandfather that were worthy, that is, that are worthy to share. Aubrey was born in 1930 in Stillwater, Oklahoma during the depression to a large family of siblings was always very frugal, never complained, and valued hard work and family. Right? What a great generation. He was always telling stories of the old days while driving me around on Saturdays going to garage sales and fishing excursions. My favorite was when his uncle acquired an old rundown Model T Ford in the mid-30s when he was five, six years old. It was my grandfather's job to wind and crank the engine. One day he forgot to put the crank up and the crank sticking out of the front caught a pothole <laughs> and launched the engine completely out of the front. He said this was the only time he had ever heard his dad cuss, yelling, Fuck! <laughs> always thought that was funny. Uh, he met my grandmother, Anne. They were married at a young age. Then he joined the Air Force during the Korean War, was stationed in England, had many more stories about being a hillbilly Yankee in England, or had many yes, stories. He returned to be a bricklayer in which he retired from uh, in 2000 at the age of 70. There is not a brick building in the Tulsa area in which he didn't seem to have either worked on or knew who built it. He would always remark about building that school, that church, that high rise, or know the old fellow who did. He was a lifelong union man and blue dog Democrat. He believed in the social programs of the Great Depression. He also didn't go to church, believing that a good God would understand the good life he lived. 
He went to every sporting event my cousins and siblings had. He was always there. He would always make everyone the best chocolate milkshakes anytime we came over. What I wouldn't give to have another one of those. He always had a calm demeanor and would always start a conversation with a story. Always laughing and then say, anyhow, change direction to the conversation. Sounds like me. Uh, My cousins and siblings and I have so many fond memories of playing in the yard, running down the trail to the big pond to fish and play hide and seek. He and my grandmother, Ann, would frequent the casino in town. That was their entertainment. And I would always drive by there, seeing their blue minivan parked up front. (laughs) I know this is running long, but I just had to relay the message. I was brought to tears listening to the end of your podcast where your grandmother and grandpa talked about you. My wife and I just had our first baby girl several months before Aubrey passed away. Thank God they got to meet. Aubrey is missed in our family immensely and everyone uh, always talks about him at get-togethers that are not the same without him. Thanks for taking the time to read this. Have a blessed day, Avery Metcalf. Well, thank you, Avery. You have a blessed day as well. Uh, man, damn. Sounds like, sounds like Aubrey Metcalf was uh, one hell of a man. Building shit that would last a lot longer than any of us will around Tulsa. Making those grandpa milkshakes that just don't taste the same when anyone else does it. Uh, hell yes, man. His, his legacy lives on uh, with you and yours. Hail Nimrod. And one more uh, with some comedy mixed in. This is fantastic. A silly sucker Joe Crab was reminded by my grandpa's weed prank on Buckhorn of a prank of his own. <laughs> this is so good. He writes, hello, Suckmaster. I just wanted to say that I thoroughly enjoyed the Suck on Pop Award last week. I lost my grandpa February of 2020. And your grandpa reminded me a lot of mine. He was a very hard worker. Loved his family more than life. He was blunt yet kind and had a dark sense of humor like me. Uh, Sounds like we would have gotten along great. Uh, I really enjoyed the prank that he pulled on his neighbor. I also enjoyed the prank you pulled on Kyler that you talked about on Scared to Death a few weeks ago. I wanted to share the best prank I've ever pulled so that you could expand on that one uh, because they are similar in nature. My son is autistic and one thing that is pretty common with people with autism is being a flight risk. I can't tell you how many times I've seen articles on young children with autism getting away from their family and drowning, which is my worst fear because my son loves water but can't swim yet. I lived in the country with a big pond in front of my house, so it was a real fear. I do swear I'm getting to the prank. Because of this fear, we got an Alexa for the house and smart switches for the doors. So when the door opens, the switch triggers the Alexa to send us a notification that the door is open. You can do all sorts of stuff, like even have it tell you a joke when the sensor is tripped. Well, my family went to Disney World in Florida, And I am from Indiana, so we drive, because that's what Midwesterners do. Our friend was watching our house and feeding our cat while we were gone that week, and while we were on the road, I had a brilliant idea. I can control Alexa from my phone. And our friend is terrified of birds. Can't handle them. So I set up the Alexa to play nature sounds whenever the door was opened. (laughs) She got there to feed the cat that night, thought there was a bird loose in the house with her. She yelled at my cat to do her job and get the bird. I was a little proud of her because she put on her big girl pants and searched the house trying to find the bird. Then when she walked past the little speaker in the living room, she noticed the sound got louder. I received a text that just simply said, you're a dick. (laughs) I didn't do anything the next day to give her a false sense of security. Ah, that's a smart play. But the day after that, I cranked it up a notch. I set it to play kill switch engages when darkness falls at full volume. (laughs) For some reason, Alexa decided to help me out a little because there was a delay just long enough for her to get to the kitchen before the sound of Howard Jones started screaming through the house. She threw her phone, hit the deck, and her heart rate went so high it registered on her Fitbit. (laughs) Then I got a call from her. She was yelling, make it stop. I told her to tell Alexa to stop and proceeded to laugh until it hurt. She sent her six-year-old daughter in the next day to test the waters, and I had it set to play Let It Go from Frozen. So her daughter was just singing along when she walked in. By far the best prank I've ever done. I only wish I had thought of it before I left so I could have set up a camera. Love the show. Rest in peace to Papa Ward. Seems like he was an amazing meat sack. Joey. 
<laughs> Holy shit, Joey. Thank you. And uh, so good. I don't have an Alexa or, or, or any of that. I didn't even know that was possible to set things up that way. I feel like you've just inspired myself and so many people to fuck with their friends and family. I need to fire off another prank. I always want to prank Lindsay, but I just, I fear the retaliation. I don't know how bad it would get. And then you know, I got Kyder last time and he kind of forgot about it, but I know if I got him again, he'd be really pissed off and he'd come, he'd come at me hard. Might have to get Monroe. Might have to target Monroe next, but she would also retaliate hard. Ah, you give me a lot to think about, Joey. Uh, thank you for the laughs. Thanks for all the grandparent messages, everyone. I'm sure I'll be sharing more on next week's Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to this Bad uh, Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Uh, please do not abduct anyone this week and maybe keep your excited Sasquatch talk to a minimum. And of course, keep on sucking. Lindsay, no, calm, calm down. No, 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 calm down. Why are you so kind of worked up right now? Come on, Dan, think, 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 think. Uh, what calms people down? Uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Talk about, no, not everyone likes those. I don't think she actually likes that combination. Uh, Hot Wheels. No, she never played with uh, Sasquatch. Uh, think about it. There could be a Sasquatch running around here. You know, a big old beast. And then think about it. That's, that should calm you down. Nothing to be afraid of with a, a Sasquatch. Come on, Bigfoot, you know? Maybe he's riding a unicorn or something. You don't know what, he, you don't know what he's doing. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.